Wait a minute, not again. What's the problem here? Not again with this. Is this Nice to see you dressed up this week, Larry. Come on, come on with this. Hey, I don't see you laughing today, huh? I'm a funny guy, huh? Well, that was so funny last week, right? But funny like a clown, right? Were you laughing at me? Ain't so funny tonight, am I? See, we can put this on anytime we want. I can be real funny. I can be deadly. So can this man. Hey, let me ask you a question. Neck, right? You got the bad neck, right? Yeah. You want to pick up your kids? Huh? You want to step in here? Hey, you're the one that laughed at them. They know what I think of them. I'm not talking about a triangle one. match, right? Well, there's two of the combatants laying out right now. You know, you know what I want to know. As I've been hearing my whole career, how scary the faces of fear are. They say, everybody says that Ming and the Barbarian are the two toughest guys in the business. Will you tell those two Islanders, come on out here, and we'll slap that coconut breath out of you. Time to come on down. You can't have a pay-per-view in WCW without inviting the NWO. Yeah, go ahead. This is how they function, they're cowards. Hey, we know, we know those faces of fear are here. So if they won't come to us, we'll go to them. Don't let it bother you. This is how they operate. They're a bunch of cowards. They're DiBiase's paid thugs. We apparently are on the air. And... You ever thought about for once helping me out here? Hey, I told him what I thought. You laughed at him last week, but I don't appreciate this either. Where's all the security? Oh my goodness, we've got another fight with fans. All you gotta do is you always gotta pick your spot. Hey, hey! My goodness. Would you look at what we're seeing in the back here? Nitro is apparently on the air. That was a match before we were supposed to take the air. Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 years of Nitro, our chronological breakdown of World Championship Wrestling's flagship show, where each episode is viewed, reviewed, analyzed, and categorized as we compile an audio anthology of our tour along the southern front of wrestling's Monday Night Wars. I am your host, Tim Root, and with me, <laughs> as always... It's only Dave Amantor. Dave, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. Um, the sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. The uh, Minnesota Twins are dominating everyone they see that are not the New York Yankees. So 
I'm feeling very good today. Hey, and they won at Yankee Stadium for the first time in a few years. So, I mean, <laughs> right. and the other two games were competitive. So, I mean, even in our, yeah. even our losing to the Yankees has improved yeah. from where it used to be. <laughs> we're losing less to them. They are certainly mashing the hell out of the ball. They're beating the crap out of everybody. They're leading everyone in the division, including the Cleveland Baseball Club, whose name I refuse to say, which, as I understand it, is the favorite team of our guest today. Oh, wow. What a segue. (laughs) He is one-third of the Sultans of Spandex, a podcast that you can find wherever you get your podcasts. He's the one and only Joey Gecko. How are you doing today, Joey? I am doing fantastic, Tim. How are you doing, Dave? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, uh, bummer about yeah. your team. <laughs> well, I want I want to be clear. They are only my team by default, simply because I was born in this part of the of the country. Um, I uh, especially now that the entire pitching staff has been utterly devastated by injuries, and that was the only good thing about the squad this year. Um, I feel like uh, I'm going to gracefully seed the. Uh, the baseball trophy of podcasting wrestling hosts to you guys today. <laughs> well, I mean, you do have the advantage that like there's for once optimism for your football team. So, you know, when I was the, the first half of my life, the Cleveland Browns were perennial playoff and oftentimes AFC champion game contenders. Mm-hmm. The second half of my life, they probably couldn't have beat my high school team. Uh, but it looks like, yeah, things are starting to turn around a little bit. So. All right, well, before we get into today's episode too much, I do want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter at 20 Years of Nitro. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash 20 Years of Nitro. And, of course, you can email the show at 20 Years of Nitro at gmail.com. Now, today is November 18th, 1996, and we are coming to you live from the sold-out Florence Civic Center in Florence, South Carolina, in front of 4,164 fans who paid a total gate of $36,030. This is the 62nd episode of WCW Monday Nitro, and it is, gentlemen, the go-home show for the World War III pay-per-view. That is coming up uh, this Sunday. Are you excited for World War III, Dave? I am. I mean, I I, I love, like, the Royal Rumble. I, I, for some reason, I especially love Battle Royals. I like the whole idea of just a mess of guys yeah. in the ring at the same time. And it's not just a ring. Yeah. It's not just two rings, <laughs> but it's three rings. It's going to be full of some of the greatest and some of the worst wrestlers you'll see. It's yeah. like, so it's like, it's just a complete spectacle. And not only that, it's a, spe- a spectacle that WCW just has no idea how to like showcase it. Yeah. So it's going to be, a, it's going to be a laugh and a half to actually watch it. Yeah. It's basically the N64 of Royal, of, of, of Rumbles. It's some of the best and most of the worst wrestlers. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, uh, it definitely, I remember uh, it was a real fucking mess <laughs> the last year. Yeah. Uh, which was the first year that they tried the 60-man battle royal. So uh, it's sort of intriguing that they're even going to that well again. And even if I don't think it'll be good, uh, I am intrigued to just see the chaos that we will uh, witness. Speaking of uh, being strange or different, Nitro starts out this week with a cold open. Uh, something that I can really only remember one other time where there was something that we were seeing before the theme song. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time it was the Giant and Loch Ness who were fighting in the aisle, leading to uh, one hell of a Lex Luger moment when he yes. walked out and posed with his belts. <laughs> Greatest Luger victory on Nitro. <laughs> but this week, we open on the site of High Voltage, Brian Nobbs, uh, Ciclope, and a guy that we've never seen before who are all laid out in the ring. 
Standing above them are Hall and Nash, who are wielding chairs. Randy Anderson is there, too, trying his best to restore order. Hall and Nash drop the chairs and head to the announce table where Tony and Larry are sitting, though they haven't yet said anything. And when you mentioned the it being a cold opening, because um, obviously we're, we're watching this on the WWE Network and not watching it live, so it is like when you when you when you select this episode, I swear because like initially I wasn't entirely paying attention when the Nitro started, sure, and I thought like it skipped ahead a few minutes. Oh sure, yeah, because it's not a cold open like it starts with a match. It's a cold open like it's mid action, right. It's it's really it's it's really weird. It kind of like throws you off and wondering like, wait, what's going on, sort of thing. And I I imagine that's what they were going for too. It's a, it's attention getting for sure. I I had the same situation where you know you you press play or or if it was a live situation, you you turn on the channel and then suddenly just things are happening and you're like, okay, where am I? I need to pay attention. What's going on? Why are these guys laying out? And what are Hall and Nash up to? And uh, if we had been watching this live, we would have probably also noticed that this was starting uh, several minutes before the 7 o'clock hour where the show normally starts. This was, uh, they started this three minutes before the top of the hour, uh, and that was to counter the fact that Raw, ever since Raw moved an hour earlier, Raw has been starting three minutes before the top of the hour in order to kind of get a little bit of a head start on Nitro. Um, And for the two or three weeks that they've been doing that, uh, Meltzer, and it makes sense, but he's been saying in The Observer that he believes that Nitro is going to start doing the same thing. And sure enough, here it is. They they opened early on this action, uh, which Tony will tell us in a moment um, that it was during a dark match. So they're they're very much going with the idea that this just happened and we had to bring it to you. It was too exciting. Ha, has uh, Tony to ever used that phrase that you're aware of before, Tim? A dark no, match? I don't remember dark match ever being. That's awfully used inside on TV baseball, before. isn't it? It is, but he does he does explain what it means. So I I mean I think inside baseball is not so bad when you explain it. I think what WCW is guilty of, and maybe not to this point in '96 that we've watched, but certainly in the years to come. Uh, they may be guilty of using a lot of inside baseball terms and just relying on you being a smart and knowing what they're talking about. Here he says, like, we were doing what we call a dark match, which is a match to get the audience excited for Nitro. So he explains to us, he gives us the context. So he bring, you know, it's, I, I'm a little, it's more understandable to me that okay. he's using that kind of terminology. Yeah, it, it just weirded me out because, especially with Tony, he's he's very much sort of like the everyman presenter of of wrestling announcers. He, yeah. he it, of, if you were to line up all of the wrestling announcers that have ever been, and you had to ask me which one likes and knows the least about wrestling, I would pick Tony Schiavone just based <laughs> on his personality. I mean, he, I'm sure he's a knowledgeable guy, but he comes off almost as if you just picked a random guy and gave him a headset. So for him to use terms like that kind of, kind of threw me off a little bit. As Hall and Nash approach the announcers, Nash tells Larry that it's nice that he dressed up this week, uh, referencing the, Hawaiian shirt that they made fun of him for last week. Yep. He then notices that unlike last week, Tony Schiavone isn't laughing. Uh, no, I kind of wonder not. if <laughs> I wonder if Schiavone got some heat for laughing at their jokes last week and not really taking the NWO as like a serious physical threat. Nash menaces Schiavone more, doing a little bit of uh, that Joe Pesci bit in Goodfellas. Am I a clown? Do I make you laugh? Am I f- how am I funny? That kind of thing. Has anyone ever done a good version of that aside from Joe Pesci? Uh, the pigeons on Animaniacs. <laughs> okay, fair point. <laughs> wow, he was he was ready for that answer. Yeah, I had that one in the chamber. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nash says that, they, that he can be funny, but he can also be deadly and lay anyone out anytime they want. Nash asks Tony about Tony's bad neck and says, Hey, you want to be able to pick up your kids, don't you? Tony just shamefully looks away. He, there's no way he can fight back physically with this big man. He knows it. He's got nothing he can do. And he just looks, he looks like pissed off, embarrassed, ashamed all at once. It's an A-plus acting job from Tony Schiavone in this moment. Is this one of the darkest segments on a Nitro that didn't involve like a shoot injury? Like, this is disturbingly realistic, the bullying that goes on. Yeah, they. I mean, they're, they're flicking at his head like something that doesn't really hurt all that much, but is just to show, hey, Dominance, I can do this. Yeah. I can do this to you and there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, yeah, I think certainly probably to this point, um, you know, we see things like, oh, God, that guy got put through a table or he got attacked viciously. But it's that's all kind of wrestling. Right. This is just bullying. This is just mean spirited. You would see this uh, at any high school in America bullying. I, yeah, I wanted to probably, give Tony a hug. I mean, it's like probably the darkest thing since uh, Hulk Hogan was swinging a sword around. I would say, <laughs> wearing his Zorro mask. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was that was something else. Definitely, kudos to Shivani for pretty much you know having the right reaction at right. every at every instance here and and I know that you've mentioned before as far as like the whole how really disturbing that is like about like the kids yeah. thing yeah you know because it's like it's like I'm not only going to affect you I'm going to affect your the way your way of life and your family right. as a result like my damage is going to like it's it's like it's gonna change the way you live pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I, ha- I have the power to take the joy out of your life. Like and, that's not okay, <laughs> right? And I would say, in Tony Schiavone's defense from last week, is their demeanor was a lot different last week. Yes, like really, Nash should be the one to blame, but I'm sure Tony was the one that got the blame for that because they were definitely joking around last week, and now they've ramped it up to like. The complete opposite, pretty much. Tony looks to Larry and asks for a little backup. Larry says that Tony brought this on himself by laughing at them. Hall cuts a promo on the faces of fear while Nash does his uh, general bullying of Shivani, fucking with his coat, his hair, flicking him on the head, just because he can. Not to be outdone on the dick scale, Hall tells, quote, those two islanders to come get the coconut breath slapped out of them. Hmm. Hall and Nash start to walk away, and Hall feigns that he might hit Larry, doing the, like, pull your arm back and see if the other guy flinches. Ah, you flinch. You totally flinch. Larry stonewalls him. He either knew it was coming or Larry's made of tough stuff, or both. Or both. Not mutually exclusive, but Larry does not flinch at all. I got a feeling that Larry could take Nash. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Yeah. (laughs) Larry calls Hall a coward when Hall just walks away. Uh, it's a nice little seed being planted for some issues that are going to come between Larry and Scott Hall over the quite a bit of the future. Hall says if the Faces of Fear won't come out to face them, then the Outsiders are going to go to them. Hall and Nash walk away, leaving Zabisco alone with a physically fine but emotionally devastated Tony Schiavone. You know, if I was if I was Hall and I was trying to jump the Faces of Fear, yeah. I wouldn't announce it like on TV. Like, we're going to come out there, <laughs> back there, and we're going to surprise you. Yeah, I think it was Logan Ninefingers who once said, hard words have started plenty of fights, but they've never finished any fights. So, <laughs> I do not know that reference. Yeah, that's a, uh, so Joey Gecko and I are both fans of uh, the first law books written by Joe Abercrombie. I recommend everyone go to read those. And it's funny you should quote that uh, in this conversation because I've actively been trying to get Dave to read them. He said he would. You should. 
Is... I also say a lot of things, too, so. Yeah. <laughs> Tony and Larry argue a bit as the camera follows the outsiders backstage where the faces of fear attack them in a loading dock. Nash and the Barbarian duel with trash cans. Barbarian loses his, and Nash hits him in the head with the can, but Barbarian doesn't sell it much, and all four men fight their way out of a fire exit and out into the night. Tony sends us to a commercial uh, and basically says, like, when we come back, we'll have the real start of the show. Yeah. So that was our cold open. In general, I thought it was a pretty effective uh, little segment. It was short. It got your attention. Uh, you know, the the idea was to get you into this and keep you from switching to Raw, and uh, I think on that measure it was a success. Yeah, and to just uh, kind of, I feel like the NWO needs to get a little bit back on track as far as being unexpected is concerned. Because the last couple of weeks, we've definitely been like, okay, now here's a cue for Hogan to come out at the end of the show and talk and have yeah. the lights dimmed and everything like that. So I feel like uh, getting them back to like what they originally were is like this rogue group that will attack anyone at any time um, is really effective, especially... Like if you're bullying someone that's not a wrestler, yeah, and making and bringing that fear not just to the wrestlers but literally everyone in WCW, like b- back when they would make the uh, the announcers just like bail just by right. their presence. Right. So I felt like this is very effective in kind of like reaffirming, kind of like what their mission is, and that's just to like stir shit up pretty much. Nitro is back on the air, along with Larry Zbysko. I'm Tony Schiavone, and and. I didn't expect to start the program this way, but for our fans to keep you up to date on what happened, we were in the midst of what we call a previous match or a dark match that gets the crowd ready for Nitro. When all this happened, the Nasty Boys attacked members of High Voltage. They had a match against some of our Mexican superstars, and here comes these guys. We are not going to show you what the Outsiders did but you can hear the sound right now of the chairs. Yeah, I think the sound is self-explanatory. Again, uh, Tony, you can't be upset about uh, what happened. These guys are thugs. They're paid by DiBiase, and uh, you're okay. So don't you know, relax about it. Don't be all upset. Yeah, I don't need to be pushed around. I'm not a wrestler. You're you're a wrestler. Yeah, but so why didn't you step in front for me? I mean, how long have we okay. been? How long have we been you're friends? Okay. You're okay, and I'm not Clint Eastwood. Well, I can only say this, and I'm going to apologize, everybody, because I've never done this before at all, but I don't need to be pushed around. I've got five children. I've got a wife. I've got a great job. I tell you what, Big Mouth, why don't they you go ahead? Why don't you go ahead? If you can't step in front of me, why don't you handle the broadcast? Hey, why I'm don't not you try play-by-play? Play? Don't get upset I'm not, I don't need. I don't need, no I don't need guys this. seven feet tall getting out here. I don't need guys seven feet tall either coming out here. just do it myself sure leave it to larry the commercial break does not allow larry and tony to work out their issues apparently as when we come back tony is still pissy as he gives us the context for what we saw earlier (laughs) he says they were in the middle of a match uh that they call a dark match which helps get the crowd ready for nitro and then they roll footage of what happened before the show started Uh, apparently it was a match between high voltage and uh what is just vaguely described as some of our Mexican superstars, mm-hmm. which uh, was Ciclope and uh, Galaxy, who we will meet in the future, so I'm not going to get into him too much now. Yeah, I remember I wrote down that quote, some of our Mexican superstars. <laughs> so, 
So they were having a match. Uh, the Nasty Boys actually ran in before the NWO run-in. So the run-in, there was a run-in into that match by the Nasties. Mm-hmm. Then the NWO came down and ran in with chairs. Uh, they freeze the footage rather than show these chair shots, which are apparently too vicious for yeah. our virgin eyes. Uh, but that's that's apparently what happened before Nitro came on the air was the NWO did a run-in on a run-in and laid everybody out. It's like a super run-in. And, and just another point about the some of our Mexican superstars yeah. is that one of them is Ciclope, who was like showcased very prominently. I don't know if it was last week or the week before. It was before. one week ago, yeah. Yeah, because Larry just kept going on and on about like not understanding his name, even though he clearly is like a Cyclops. Yeah, yeah. So like we're well aware of who this is. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like they're just they're just not being informative. It like, just shows you the level of, of seriousness with which they take the Mexican wrestlers. Right. Larry tells Tony that the NWO are nothing more than paid thugs doing DiBiase's bidding, and that Tony needs to get over what happened minutes ago. Tony has big pouty face, indicating <laughs> that that's not going to be happening anytime soon. Tony is pissed that Larry, a wrestler, and more importantly his friend, didn't step in. But Larry keeps pointing out that Tony is okay, so what's the big deal? It's kind of a good example of, like, a guy who, like Larry, who's strong and grew up studying martial arts. He's probably never been the victim of bullying. He's like, what's the big deal? You didn't even get hurt. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tony is like, that's not been his personality. I'm not saying Tony Schiavone was bullied or anything, but he understands more being in that position than a guy like Larry does. So right. it's, it's kind of interesting seeing two adults uh, from completely different, like, physical backgrounds and body types and and just attitudes and how they kind of conflict with this. It Again, it's uh, like in the opening, it feels very real. Yeah, there's a legitimacy to their conversation that, again, you know, pure speculation, but I get the sense that Tony was drawing from a very real place. Um, he went He went to an emotionally vulnerable place during these segments, and it's, it is crazy effective, and it, it's, it's super impressive how he's able to convey these these feelings and and this pathetic in the truest sense of the word in that I have pathos for him and I want him to be okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony, as Tony talks about it, he kind of works himself up more. Like, he was pissed when we got back from the break, but the more he talks about it, the more angry it makes him. Uh, the way Larry is reacting just makes him more angry. And so he takes kind of a pause and then apologizes to the audience and says that he's got five kids and a wife at home and he doesn't need to be pushed around. They bicker just a bit more, and Tony takes off his headset, yells some stuff at Larry that we can't hear now that he doesn't have a mic on, and Tony Schiavone walks off the show. I'm sure what he yelled was like, since it's Tony, it was probably pretty PG anyway. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> Gosh darn it. Ah, oh, oh heck. <laughs> Larry is annoyed and put upon that he has to do the show himself, but soldiers on, tossing it to Dave Penzer. He he has, like, a really great bit of just being like, oh, sure, Larry will do it. Yeah. Everyone needs Larry to pick up the pieces. Like, it's just such a sociopathic viewpoint, uh, Larry, who's just always thinking about himself, how everything mm-hmm. impacts only him, how he is the victim in a situation in which Tony is clearly the actual <laughs> victim. Right. But Larry is just, like, incapable of seeing beyond himself. I thought it was, whether that's character or whether that's, Larry Zabisco, uh, I forget the man's real name. I know that's not his actual name, but I feel like it's a it's a generous mix of both. Yeah, eh, that's probably true. Dave Penzer introduces a new luchador who we talked a bit about last week in our worldwide edition. It's La Parka. 
Larry tells us that Laparca is going to be wrestling Juventud Guerrera tonight, and uh, I am giddy for the fact that of all the matches that Larry could be calling by himself, <laughs> uh, the one that he's going to be doing is featuring Laparca and Juventud Guerrera. He's no Mike Tanay. Let's, let's we can put it that way. That's for sure. <laughs> As evidenced by, by him pretty much begging for Mike Tanay to show up. A burly mass skeleton walks out of the entranceway. <laughs> Laparca is 31-year-old Adolfo Tapia Ibarra from Torreon, Mexico. Tapia debuted at the age of 16 using his real name. He would later try various mass gimmicks such as El Gringo, El Minero, El Asinio de Tepito, uh, with the most success coming as Principe Island, or the Island Prince. <laughs> he won several masks before losing his own to El Hijo del Santo. He then took bookings as both an unmasked Principe Island and the masked Invasor del Norte, until being unmasked in 1991, revealing that both characters were the same man. <gasps> yeah, <Shots? appropriate>, yes. <laughs> when Antonio Pena founded AAA in 1992, he signed Tapia very early uh, in that promotion's history. Pena was the one who repackaged Tapia as La Parca, Spanish for The Reaper, and the character was basically an instant success. Out of the gate, he feuded with Lismark over the Mexican National Light Heavyweight Championship at the inaugural Triple Mania, where Lismark retained his title. Laparca would win several other championships, and finally, after a year of chasing, he finally won that Mexican Light Heavyweight title from Lismark in September of 1994. He's had a couple matches in America, uh, one at the AAA WCW co-branded show When Worlds Collide in 1994, and a trios match... Uh, or in a trios match, rather, where he faced the unlikely team of Chris Benoit, Two Cold Scorpio, and Tito Santana. Oh. <laughs> that is okay. such a random, like, that is eras colliding, styles colliding. Yeah. He also had one match in ECW in 1995 where he teamed with Psychosis against Rey Mysterio Jr. and Conan. Hoovy comes down to the ring, and Larry, a guy who last week didn't seem able to figure out from context clues that Cyclope means Cyclops, <laughs> does know that Hooventude means Youth Warrior. I'm assuming that Mike Tanay gave him some notes to use for this period where he's on his own. Because well, there's no way that there's no way that Larry knew what Hooventude meant. Well, my guess was that uh, that Mike Tanay probably before the show started left his notes at the table, and so he just <laughs> slid them over in on top of his own notes. Yeah, I just imagine uh, Zabisco is just frantically like papers flying off the desk as he's trying to find something that has a name on it that he recognizes. <laughs> Hooventude decides to start the match perched on the top rope. What is he doing up there? I, what isn't he doing up there? <laughs> yeah, and why is the referee allowing this? The bell rings and Hooventude dives at Laparca, who ducks him. Parka tries a kick, but Guerrera dodges and hits a jumping heel kick. They chop each other down and do some reversals until Parka kicks Hooventude in the goddamn face and Hoovy goes down. <laughs> As Guerrera levels Parka with a lariat, Zabisco is bailed out by Mike Tanay. Tanay is, uh... He's like, you know, very distressed at what happened with Tony. He can't believe it, but he's going to he's going to do his best to soldier through tonight. Yeah. Laparca hits a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker as Tanay expresses concern for Shivani and Larry dismissively claims that Tony had no reason to run out and needs to just be a man. <laughs> it's like minutes later and he's already like adjusting the narrative to how it helps out Larry Zabisco. <laughs> yes. He's a he's a psychopath. You absolutely nailed it. He is a psychopath. <laughs> Laparca gets a two count and then charges Hooventude, who's against the ropes. 
Hoovy back body drops Parka over the top rope onto the apron. From there, LaParka leaps up, sits on the top rope, hooks his legs under Guerrera's arms, and lifts and flips backwards, pulling Juventud up over the top rope and depositing him on the floor. LaParka follows up with a suicide dive that really seems to impress Larry. LaParka sets Guerrera up on the top rope, but Juventud fights back and they both stand on the top rope. Guerrera shoves LaParka, who is meant to crotch himself, but LaParka lands really awkwardly with one foot on the apron and the other is draped over the top rope under his knee. Uh, Tanay boldly lies and claims that he got crotched when, like, that is a lie in front of our face at the moment. Laparka pulls himself up into a sitting position on the top rope. Uh, there's no reason for him to put himself in that position. It's completely ridiculous. Uh, it's just a setup for Guerrera to come up from the apron with a springboard hurricanrana. Hoovy covers Laparka for a two count, then quickly slaps on a headlock. Back on their feet, Guerrera hits the top rope cabrada, which was very neat. He gets a two off that and then goes for a springboard nothing as LaParka drop kicks him out of the air for two. He drop kicks Guerrera again, sending him to the outside, where LaParka then hits a huge plancha to the floor. Probably it's, one of the most impressive top rope to the floor planchas I've seen in a long time. Yeah, he's a big buddy too, so mm-hmm. it is it is surprising to see him go that full force. Yeah, I, I mean that it, it's pretty up there with the with the Eddie Guerrero ones we were getting pretty early. In the early episodes of Nitro. Yeah, absolutely. Was that the one you also tweeted about? Back in the ring, LaParka decimates Guerrero with a massive powerbomb. Tanay says that both of these guys will be in the World War III Battle Royal. LaParka gets a two count with a light pin, then gets Guerrero in an inverted surfboard. Hooventude manages to escape and drop down into a pin for two. Hoovy then hits a top rope missile dropkick for another two. Hoovy goes back to the chin lock, but LaParka Irish whips him into a corner. LaParka charges, but Juventud dodges, and LaParka hits his shoulder on the ring post. Tanay says there's a rumor backstage all day that Roddy Piper is going to be making his first ever appearance on Nitro tonight, but they haven't yet been able to confirm if that's true. They do know that Hogan is there, and Larry unveils his new nickname for Hogan, Ed Wood Hulk Hogan, a play on the notoriously awful film director of the 50s and 60s, uh, Ed Wood, and uh, he was the subject of a Tim Burton-directed Johnny Depp-starring film titled Ed Wood that had come out in 1994, uh, so it was not the most dated reference. I mean, it wasn't hearkening back to the 50s. It was something that people were kind of thinking about at the time. Right, yeah, so it's not it's not a really dated reference, which is uh, a, it's a plus when it comes to our commentators. Now, I know, maybe not so much now, um, that he's kind of a shithead, but you were a big Johnny Depp guy. Are you a Ed Wood fan? Is that one that you like? Um, I don't, I don't remember it very well. I really like Ed Wood. Joey, are you an Ed Wood fan? The actual movie or the the director himself? (laughs) Either one. I'm, I'm way more familiar with the, the real life Ed Wood. I think I saw the, the docudrama, uh, that came out when it came out, but it's probably been 20 years since I've seen it. It is. It's a really good, it's an underappreciated movie. I'm a big Tim Burton guy, so I like that one a lot. Right, and it has uh, George the Animal Steel in it too. That's true. Yes. Yeah, he's like yeah, the, he plays he's the like alien, the, right? Yeah. The monster man that he he goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward goes to a wrestling show and sees him. And he's like, I love this man. He has to be in all my movies, pretty much. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's of the real director, definitely. If you have not seen it, everyone should go watch Plan Nine from Outer Space. Yeah, it is definitely like the uh, '50s or '60s equivalent of The Room. Glenn uh, or Glenda. It's a Glenn or Glenda is another good one. That was the thing when the um. Whatever the movie about the room guy is called, 
What was the one that just the one with out? James Franco, the yeah. Disaster Artist? Yeah, when I saw a preview for that, I was like, "This feels like the Ed Wood movie, like just redone, pretty much." Yeah, yeah. It's uh, although it's adapted from a book that was written by the co-star of the room, so like at least there's a first-hand account, I guess. Oh, all right, um, fair enough. But yeah, I would, I and I would say that uh, Ed Wood is the superior movie of those two. Anyway, anyway, that's probably not. <laughs> Anyway. Uh, that's enough to talk about Ed Wood, although it did deserve some mention because Larry is going to repeat that joke 40 times tonight. That's absolutely in character for Larry's <laughs> Yes, yeah, right. this is his new, um, new world o- order. O- odor, God, I couldn't even think of it. There. That's because yeah. it's so dumb. Even yeah. when you're trying to make fun of him, you can't think of something that dumb to say. And And it's probably the thing where it's like, well, I'm going to keep saying it until someone tells me it's a bad idea, but no one's going to, like, just say... Yeah, stop that nickname. It's a bad nickname. Yeah, I don't know if it's true in 96. I believe it is, but Larry, uh, excuse me, Tony is the producer for the announcers. So he is the uh, boss of all the announcers. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that he liked giving negative criticism, especially to guys that he had to work with on a weekly basis. You know, just like think of Tony Schiavone's personality. He's not really giving the hard notes. Right. <laughs> I, I cannot picture that. Um, it's the sort of thing where if he had notes for Larry, Larry would just crumple them up and throw them back at him. Yeah, exactly. And then complain that he should be a man. Yeah. (laughs) Pick it up. Guerrera slams Leparka's head into the turnbuckle ten times so the crowd can have fun counting. This earns him a two count. Guerrera sets Leparka up on the top rope and hits a Hurricanrana for two. And it's chin lock time again. He then hits a seated Leparka with a drop kick to the face for a two. Chin lock. In a corner, Guerrera tries to float over a charging Laparca, but Laparca catches him and runs into the opposite corner looking for snake eyes, but Guerrera jumps off and pushes Laparca into the corner instead. As Laparca careens backwards, Juventud goes for his uh, Hurricanrana where he jumps onto the guy's shoulders and then twists around yeah. and does the Hurricanrana. At least the times that he's performed it on Nitro, it's never looked good. It always looks like it's in slow motion. Right. This was another one of those times. Laparca's got these big shoulder pads on. Yeah, I was just about to ask his movement. Mm -hmm. If you think the shoulders had anything to do with the sloppiness, but Uh, it all goes in slow motion. Laparca eventually flips over, completing the move, and Juventud gets himself another two count. Laparca gets a scoop slam and tries a top rope somersault senton, but there's nobody home. Guerrera drops an elbow for two. Guerrera tries to scoop slam Laparca, but Laparca cradles him for two. A kick and a DDT by Guerrera gets a two count again, and after the DDT, Laparca does something that just really pisses me off. He adjusts his mask. Like, he sells, he gets a DDT, he sits up as if he's, like, stunned, mm-hmm. but he's not stunned because he's fixing his fucking mask. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of, I hate when wrestlers, like, are selling a move and they pull their hair out of their mouth, or they... Adjust their trunks. Adjusting yeah. their trunks is the biggest one, for sure. Uh, so that just always really drives me crazy. It's, it's, it really kills kayfabe for me. Laparca puts Hoovy on the top rope, but Guerrera uses the opportunity to catch him with a rolling DDT. Another two, and the crowd is starting to sound more annoyed by the two counts than they are excited about them. <laughs> Guerrera puts Laparca on the top rope and tries for another top rope Rana, but this time Laparca holds onto the ropes and Le- Guerrera crashes and burns on the mat. Hoovy gets to his feet, but Laparca nails him with a corkscrew senton that finally gets the three count at a little over nine minutes. Uh, so apparently what happened with this match is that Laparca and Hoovy were told they were going four minutes. Mm-hmm. So they laid out the match and performed the first four minutes under that understanding. 
Uh, but then they just never got the word to go home. So it's unclear if they were if four minutes was a mistake or if something happened backstage. This is just a note I'm getting from the observer, so he doesn't have like the full information. That's just uh, and it makes sense if you watch the match. Like it certainly seems that way. It seems like they did everything they had, and then they were just like, "Oh shit!" Like we we're just keep going. So they do big spot chin lock, big spot chin lock, big spot chin lock until someone finally says go home, and then they go to the finish. Yeah, it, it, it very much seems like two different matches almost. The first half is super crisp and clean and exciting and high energy. And then, as you were saying, just move, headlock to call the next move, move, headlock to call the next move. It, so that that makes sense that they were given a certain number of minutes and then wildly got overextended. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I thought overall the match was pretty good. I thought it was, a, especially as a um, showcase for Laparca and his just kind of very unique look and his move set that's pretty surprising, given that he is kind of a burlier guy. Mm-hmm. I think it was effective in that. But definitely uh, the original plan, or at least what they were going for with a four- to five-minute match, would have certainly been better than this nine-minute one. What do you think, Dave? Right, yeah, and... And like you guys are saying, it, it feels like two different matches, and the second match is not a good one. You know, it's uh, <laughs> and because it, it it seems like it's improvisation between two guys that probably haven't wrestled each other a whole lot. Because you think there might be a little bit more, like it might be a little bit more fluid rather than let's get ourselves in the position so we can literally talk about it in the ring. Yeah, sort of thing. I mean, they've both been in AAA, but. It's possible that they were both baby faces and didn't work. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know if they worked together a lot or not. That's a good question. They might have, but it might be that they were, you know, their alignment never made that really possible. Right. It, it just, to me, when it comes to like knowing wrestlers have been improvising in the ring, this was just like a very weak example of it, like coming across very fluid and successful. So, um, yeah, I mean, if it ended up being that five minute match, it would have been amazing, but now it's kind of like, it was okay. I was ready yeah. for a den, though. The ending does get a big pop. Uh, that corkscrew sent on looks pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Laparca bows and blows kisses to the four sides of the ring as Larry and Tony <laughs> put him over a bit. We see a slow motion replay of the top rope plancha to the floor, which looks even crazier in slow motion. And then it's time for a commercial break. On return, Tanay throws it to a video package on Ultimo Dragon, who Tanay says has eight cruiserweight titles and tonight looks to make it nine. As we see footage of Dragon in action and posing with his belts, uh, and nicely, as opposed to a few of the other video packages we've seen where it's all from, like, a guy's three matches in WCW, here they've actually gotten some New Japan footage, so we're seeing some different stuff. Uh, He's, like, against Sasuke and and a few different guys, so that's pretty cool. Uh, Yeah, you can can tell because the, the New Japan footage has the preferred dark audience as opposed to the way too yes. well too lit Nitro stages. Agreed. Uh, today explains to the Nitro audience a little bit about the J-Crown title and the tournament that put them together. Uh, he notably does not mention that Sasuke was the one who won the tournament and Dragon had to win it from Sasuke later. 
uh, after the man broke his goddamn head open. Yep. But uh, <laughs> but I suppose it's neither here nor there because Sasuke is not coming into WCW, so right. there's no need to put him over. You, you're here to talk about Dragon, so I guess that makes sense. Right. Nor nor did they go into detail about all the different titles that are in there because one of them is a uh, unmentionable championship. Yes, one of them is the <laughs> WWF light heavyweight title, which uh, is why even though he has eight belts, if you count the number he has uh, between him and Sonny Ono as they come out, it's only seven. Wait up. Wait, one, two, wait a second. <laughs> he he brought out that WWF title his first time out, didn't they? And then WWF said stop? No, I think they never brought it out because okay. they were already being sued over the Alundra Blaze uh, right, the Medusa right. belt incident. So I think that that made them nervous about a lot of things, but belts very specifically. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. And you'd think they would have known better given the whole thing that where they sued the WWF, or threatened to sue the WWF over Ric Flair bringing the belt, the NWA belt, back in 92. Uh, right. The real <laughs> world championship. <laughs> yes. They decided not to play with that fire anymore. Or I guess that would have been 91, just in case some dork out there is angrily tweeting me <laughs> right now. Oh, can... okay, I'll put my phone down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought the video package, it's only about a minute long, but I thought it was good by video pa- 1996 WCW video package standards. I thought it was a good introduction for the guy. Yeah, and in contrast to like the Rey Mysterio one is the kind of the one you're referring to where his video package consisted of him and Dean Malenko, Yeah, pretty much. Um, in one match. Which is, yeah, it's it's like I find it interesting because like New Japan, there there's a very like give and take, like a very good working relationship in which they are sharing the video, right? And they have an agreement with AAA, but AAA doesn't seem very willing to share their videos, or I'm not I'm not sure. Well, yeah, that's a good question because really they they had an agreement with Conan. Yeah, because I mean, like still... it was the AAA was a part of it because it's not like they were blocking guys, but like everything ran through Conan, and that's what we're seeing now that Conan struck out on his own away from AAA. Mm-hmm. Why WCW felt no loyalty towards AAA because all their relationship was with Conan. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like Antonio Pena really put very much into that relationship at all. So when it came time to decide, like, hey, are we going to stick with the organization or are we going to stick with our guy Conan? It doesn't even seem like WCW thought twice about sticking with well, Conan. Well, right, they, you they go with the Mexican Hulk Hogan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bathed in red light and accompanied by Sonny Ono and a whole lot of hardware, out comes Ultimo Dragon. Tanay asked Larry about Bobby Heenan's choice of Dean Malenko as the potential winner of the 60-man w- World War III Battle Royal. That was something that Heenan said on last week's show. Mm-hmm. And Larry, who I think is only half listening, but also has to one-up everyone on everything they say, <laughs> right. he takes issue and says, like, well, you can't pick these big guys. He's talking about Dean Malenko, and he's like, you can't pick big guys because everyone teams up against the big guys, so you should pick yeah. someone like Rey Mysterio. Right. So he's, he's picked, like, the only guy smaller than Dean Malenko just to show how he's even smarter than Bobby Heenan. That, that's kind of the half-listening sort of thing that you're talking <laughs> yes. about. He, he does bring up an excellent point, though. How are you going to get a man like Dean Malenko over the top rope? <laughs> he's too low center of gravity. <laughs> all right, well, the time has come for Ultimo Dragon versus the Cruiserweight champion, Dean Malenko, and here to call all the action is our own low center of gravity, <laughs> Dave Amantorp. <laughs> Only reason why I haven't won World War III is because I wasn't allowed in it. <laughs> banned. Banned from the three rings. Right. Also, I would have been like 13. <laughs> but either way. The match begins with some pre-recorded comments from Rey Mysterio Jr., who I think gives a decent babyface promo. Um, I also like to mention that 
since he's debuted, and it's only been a few months, but I think each promo of his has gotten just a little bit better. The whole context of what he's saying is it's like a lot, lot more fluid, in my opinion. Sure. I'm I'm sorry, Dave. In your opinion, do you think the inset promo is one of the lost treasures of wrestling that they don't use anymore? I feel like we've mentioned that many times on that show on the show that we love the inset promos. I mean, especially it, I think it's really effective for like right at the beginning of the match. Yeah. When maybe there's not, it's okay to not pay a hundred percent attention. Um, and I also like this promo because Rey Mysterio, I mean, he basically implies that like from title change to title change, they're even now because Ray took the belt from Dean. Dean took the belt away from Ray. Yeah. And so he's kind of old, like this rubber match, which isn't like entirely true. Cause they've had other matches with each other, but I just like the way that he placed it. So it's like, okay, now you can see why right. I feel entitled to this title match. But no, I mean, I, I love the inset promos. Um, there's some really good, uh, Arn Anderson has a couple of good ones. Oh yeah. It, it, I think it also Sullivan's depends. had some good ones. I like this promo because Ray starts off by saying, Dean Malenko, I want to be really honest with you. <laughs> I just, I don't know. It's Something about that caught yeah. me in the right way. It was very funny. And also they have, I think they have like the Mexican national flag behind him. Yes, they do have the just flag. Just in case Mexico you have him. like confusion as far as his nationality is concerned. Right. Yeah. Except yeah. for isn't he from Baja, California? He's, uh, yeah, he's from California. Um Grew up in California, then his family moved to Mexico, but he still went to school in California the whole time. So, yeah, he's he's basically as dual national as you can get. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's lived in both countries his whole life, sometimes at the same time. He was essentially living in both countries. Yeah, but it's like, for the common wrestling fan, they don't want you to be confused about, like, how he could be <laughs> right. both, maybe? Yeah. So he's just Mexican. Yeah, when he talks and has, like, virtually no accent, you'd think someone would be like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, So back in the ring, and Dragon has grounded Malenko with a leg lock, which is an impressive reversal of fortune for the Cruiserweight champion. Malenko tries to rally back, but it seems like no matter what he does, Ultimo Dragon has a quick counter ready. After a chop in the corner, Dragon whips Malenko across the ring and hits his patented springboard elbow. He goes to the well again, but Malenko counters with a running clothesline to the corner. The two have a flurry of quick counters, culminating in Ultimo Dragon hitting a double underhook suplex for two. Dragon sends Malenko to the outside. However, the champion manages to dodge a baseball slide, and now the two are battling at ringside. Back in the ring, and Dragon misses a top rope moonsault, giving Malenko the opening for the Texas Cloverleaf. However, at this point, Sonny Ono climbs onto the apron, so Malenko backdrops him into the ring yeah that was weird to me like he wasn't actively interfering he was just standing there right yeah it's a very weird moment and um i'm not sure if it's a mistake or if it just is played off awkward because it's so- dean sort of stumbles forward as if ultimo dragon kicked him forward like to get out of the cloverleaf mm-hmm. but dragon didn't maybe he was supposed to and forgot or maybe he was taking too much time to do it, and yeah. Dean thought it was making the cloverleaf look weak, so he broke it early. But yeah, Dean kind of stumbles forward as if he's being forced into it and then doing a back body drop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. It, there's something about it that just doesn't look like exactly how it was supposed to play off. But that's the position we're in now. Sonny Ono is now in the ring. So Ultimo Dragon, seeing the opportunity to take advantage, comes off the ropes. So Dean Malenko backdrops him out of the ring. Which, to the surprise of everyone, myself included, 
gives the Ultimo Dragon a disqualification victory. Yeah. Terrible, terrible ending. Uh, we just saw in the match before this, Laparka did the thing where he sat on the top rope and used his legs to hook under Hoovy's arms and pull yeah. him up over the top rope. So that was not momentum. That was like a clear move intended to pull his opponent over the top rope to the outside. Right. Uh, and there was no DQ. Uh, spoiler alert, there will be a guy going over the top rope in the next match. <laughs> so they have sandwiched this match yeah. with this finish with mm -hmm. two matches that ignore that same rule. It, it's, it's all about that that uh, example by contrast, you know? You right. make this one so much more important because they clearly don't give a fuck about that rule at any other time. Yeah, it's funny because uh, you know, we talk about it a lot, and I was trying to remember as I put my notes together when the last time it happened was and uh, I actually happened to see, so so people might not know, and, and we didn't really hit on it at the beginning. I was going to save it for kind of plugs at the end, but your podcast, The Sultans of Spandex, looks at WCW pay-per-views. Yes. Uh, but on Twitter, you you watch Nitros, and you kind of react, and you, you put a lot of GIFs as you mm -hmm. watch them. So they're kind of live, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Live tweeting? Uh, yeah, basically. It's not live, I mean, you're watching. It, yeah, as I'm taking notes, I'll, I'll, I'll be tweeting out just, Mostly jokes, you know, not not a bunch of serious shit, but um, gifs and jokes and little yeah. examples of what I'm watching. And you just had the other day, you're somewhere in the 40s, so you're about 20 episodes mm -hmm. behind us, give or take. And uh, one of those episodes, there was a a top rope disqualification. So that was a little more recent than I think I would have remembered. Although, based on how long it sometimes takes us to make episodes, yeah. <laughs> 20 weeks could have been like three years in actual human time. Right. Yeah, it was one of the uh, it was one of the nitros from the MGM Studios that they were doing right after Bash at the Beach, I think. Oh, right. Yeah, those outside shows. That palm tree right in the... Uh... Yeah, the entrance and in not the tower a, of terror. <laughs> not a single guy got thrown into that palm tree. No, the uh, or did Benoit they? did it at one point. I forget if he got thrown into it or threw someone into it, but it was like, of course, Benoit is the one smart enough to start using yes. the props. Yeah. Uh, so there was a little bit of foreshadowing during that match that I want to hit on, just because it's important for some stuff that's going to happen later in the show. Uh, they're talking about how the NWO wants to take over Monday Nitro, and Larry's like, "Well, too bad, just don't let him." And Tanae says, well, you might remember that at War Games, Eric Bischoff agreed to a bunch of concessions should the NWO win that match, including that they get their own TV show, uh, which isn't exactly true. They were supposed to get that Saturday night thing, and they did. They have a segment on Saturday night every week, mm -hmm. um, but they're saying they're not satisfied with that now. Anyway, the important bit is that Tanae says that he doesn't know why Eric agreed to all those concessions and those why stipulations. Why would he do that? So that's uh, just something to plant in the back of your mind for later in the show. I'm sure it won't matter. Uh, Dragon seems reasonably satisfied, if confused, by the win. He's kind of doing the, like, baby face, like, uh, I mean, I guess I, I won. I didn't do anything wrong, but yeah, I'm not super win, happy I, about yeah. it. For uh, some reason, in my head, I call that the Jericho reaction. I just, I, hmm. I picture that with him, like Jericho's always winning and kind of being surprised by it. <laughs> well, his first match, he won against um, Alex Wright. Alex Wright. By count out, and then he refused the victory. Yeah. So he did kind of yeah. have like a, a win is a win, I guess, but he objected to it, whereas yeah. Ultimate Dragon's like, listen, I'm going to the pay window. doesn't really matter. Well, it's, you know, it's not as, uh, he doesn't speak English. So he's like, even if I <laughs> wanted right. to tell these guys. That's right. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. He's desperately trying to get Sonny Ono to translate it. <laughs> yeah. Sonny Ono is ecstatic. He will take a win anyway. He can get it, of course. Mm -hmm. 
This keeps uh, Malenko and Psychosis at the pay-per-view being for the Cruiserweight title, and Ray uh, versus Ultimo Dragon will be for the J-Crown title. I'm very much looking forward to both of those matches on the yeah. World War Three undercard. I like this match um, because I felt like it made Ultimo Dragon interesting, in which it's like, here's Dean Blinko. He's a Cruiserweight champion. He's one of the best wrestlers at WCW. And it seemed like everything that Malenko did, Ultimo Dragon had a counter for it. And and I even thought that like this DQ victory was kind of like built out of frustration from Malenko's part. Is that he, there, here's this new guy that he just doesn't quite, you can't quite figure out how to get the best of him. So like you said, I mean, it's still, it, it keeps uh, Malenko strong for his pay-per-view match, but also just makes this potential match against Ultimo Dragon really interesting. Yeah, and for me, continuity and storyline um, is one of the more thing that one of the things that I enjoy the most about wrestling. And even if you just go back a couple of months, this is very much in character for Dean to be coming up against somebody, and when he realizes he can't just beat him because mm-hmm. of his incredible skill, that frustration does tend to build, and he ends up doing something slightly heelish or something slightly shitty. He did it with Ray and at the beginning of their feud. Yep. Um, and, and so that kind of consistency of character, I thought, was, was real good in this match. After commercial, we're told that on Saturday night, we're going to see the Faces of Fear versus Cyclope and Galaxy. Regal is going to defend the television title against the Cruiserweight champion, Dean Malenko. Arn Anderson will face Bunkhouse Buck, who is, uh, I'm sure, just coming back in time to be in that pay-per-view and get a nice little payday. Oh, nice, yeah. Uh, Jeff Jarrett's going to face me and Mike Penis, Chris Jericho, <laughs> Kevin Sullivan, a match presented by the NWO, and much, much more. Tanae tosses us to a replay of last week when Sister Sherry wanted to kill Colonel Robert Parker after the Heat Canadians match. Oh, Canada plays, and out comes the aforementioned incroyable Canadian Francais hmm. and Colonel Robert Parker. I trust those are words. <laughs> what is Parker wearing? He is wearing a oh uniform of the French Foreign Legion. He a, looks uh, ridiculous. It's a little he, ridiculous. I'm sorry, he looks more ridiculous. <laughs> yes, it is somehow more ridiculous than the all-white outfit of the Kentucky Colonel. <laughs> right. Tanae tells us that the pay-per-view this Sunday will see Harlem Heat, who will face the amazing French Canadians, and if the Heat win, Sherry will get five minutes in the ring with Colonel Robert Parker. As mentioned, he has traded in his plantation owner suit for the French Foreign Legion uniform. Uh, That's a little ridiculous because the French Foreign Legion is a branch of the French military, which has nothing to do with Canada. Mm -hmm. Like, I know Quebec speaks the language, but it's not like they're a part of France. That's close enough for for '90s white people. Well, it's fine. <laughs> it, it, it it seems like it would some it would be something that Parker would do with just like the minimal research. Like yeah, he, yeah. he heard a phrase or an idea and he ran with it without really like looking into it, which seems like very on par with his character too. Yeah, sure. Right. I I see. He signs into Prodigy. He goes to their search engine. He's like he puts in the word French. It auto completes to costume and just the French Foreign Legion comes up. He's like, good enough for me. He's like, say no more. The Amazings begin the Canadian National Anthem, but eventually their mic is cut so that we can hear the American Males theme. (laughs) The Males have got pyro, they've got an American flag, and they've got high fives. What they don't have is any sign of the issues that have been plaguing the team for several weeks. 
The bell rings and Tanae says that we still have not confirmed the rumor that Roddy Piper is in the building, and he and Larry banter about World War III a bit, with Tanae making the point that you'll see guys who wrestle for years without ever getting a title shot that will finally have their best opportunity to earn one. And and this is like, um, that's sort of the same thing with the Royal Rumble, where they always hype that up, but you just, you never see like a random or a low card guy end up winning. It's like, there's always that promise, but that promise is never fulfilled. Hell, I I would take a a mid card guy in the, in the last five or four, like that would be exciting to me. The American males are suddenly very patriotic as besides their big American flag, Bagwell tells the camera that it's another great day to be an American. (laughs) He would know. He would definitely know. The bell rings and Bagwell and Carl Ouellette circle each other and Bagwell gets a USA chant going, which really annoys those dastardly French Canadians. Oh, that's not their country. (laughs) (laughs) Ouellette and Bagwell go back and forth a bit until Bagwell dropkicks him and then dropkicks an encroaching Jacques Rougeau for good measure. The males then use a double clothesline to send Ouellette over the top rope to the outside. Uh, so there, that's the moment I was referring to oh. where he went over the top rope. Okay. So there, yeah. Officially, both uh, two of the three matches have had the exact same thing that yeah. got the third disqualified. The males then hit a double back body drop on Rougeau, and they are working well together tonight. I'm sure their problems have been resolved forever. <laughs> Rougeau comes in, and Marcus twists his arm and tags in Riggs. Riggs goes to lock up, but Jacques tells him to wait a minute and then proceeds to lay down and kip up a couple times, just kind of kipping up out of nowhere just to show that he can. Mm-hmm. And then he gestures to the crowd with a big, like, ah, ah. <laughs> it's so great. It's such a great moment. The fans are unimpressed. No. Oh. Uh, not me. I was very impressed. Yeah. Of the nobles watching, 99 were impressed. Queen Braun <laughs> was not impressed. That's a joke for all the Final Fantasy IX fans. Gotcha. Okay, I was, I was just like, I'm, I'm right I know, I could feel you. Dave right staring at me you. blankly. So I was like, is Tip having a stroke right now? <laughs> those, those aren't words. <laughs> He's not gonna be able to get the full reward spectrum. He's only gonna get like the t- the two thousand gil. <laughs> they do some back and forth rope running with Riggs doing that lie on your back and use your legs to launch your opponent. Mm-hmm. I've never know what to call that. It's not exactly a monkey flip, but it's sort of similar. It's a trebuchet. They then repeat the spot, only this time Jacques tries to go down to his back, but Riggs is onto him and punches him in the face instead. (laughs) Jacques recovers and whips Riggs into the ropes. Riggs leapfrogs him and crashes right into Bagwell, who just came into the ring for some reason. Bagwell has the audacity to get annoyed with Riggs over that, which is (laughs) like, fuck you, buddy. Rougeau, rather than take advantage, sarcastically claps for the... I was just, just going to point that out, Tim. That is such a great heel moment. Yeah, just, it's very did, funny. He's just going ham on that clap, too. Like, <laughs> fuck you guys. Bagwell heads back to his corner, and as Mark Curtis tells him not to pull that kind of stunt again, the French Canadians manage to double-team Riggs for a while before Jacques tags in Pierre. The Canadians tandem kick Riggs right in the gut and then throw him by his hair to the mat. Jacques then scoops up Ouellette to slam him onto Riggs, but Riggs doesn't know that's what's coming or forgets or something, so he sits up and is completely out of position to have a guy body slammed onto him. That is not going to stop Jacques Rougeau, however, as he scoops (laughs) up Ouellette and uh, doesn't know what else to do with him, so he just chucks him into the back of the seated Riggs, who is not looking and has no idea that this is coming. Uh, Amazingly, nobody dies. 
Yeah, that was, it was a uh, uh, disturbing looking little moment. The Canadians tag again, allowing Jacques to hold Riggs while Ouellette builds up a head of steam for a big lariat. They continue the double team, lifting Scotty and dropping him across the top rope. Bagwell weirdly runs in for a second time, then just returns to the outside without having done anything. Rougeau tries to hold on to Riggs for Ouellette to punch him, but Riggs ducks and Ouellette punches Rougeau instead. This allows Scotty to make the hot tag to Marcus. Bagwell is a house of fire with punches, scoop slams, drop kicks, and clotheslines for both of the AFC. He pumps up the crowd, back body drops Ouellette, and socks Rougeau in the gut. Colonel Robert Parker is apoplectic as Bagwell gets the Canadians with a double noggin knocker. Bagwell tries to back body drop Jacques, but Rougeau lands on his feet. Riggs tries to help things by getting behind Rougeau and hitting him with a knee to the back, but this only propels Rougeau into Bagwell. Allegedly, they hit heads. That's what they sell, and that's what the announcers say. Their heads were nowhere near colliding, uh, which is for the best. I don't want people hitting heads together. <laughs> is that believable enough for you? <laughs> and as Mark Curtis gets Riggs out of the ring, Ouellette rolls Jacques on top of Bagwell for the one, two, three. The Canadians celebrate outside of the ring while the males argue inside. Uh, their argument is pretty funny with each trying to explain their thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the highlight is Riggs like mockingly doing Buff's posing, or I should say Marcus's posing. Yeah. He's just like, you're doing all this <laughs> shit. We're trying to win a match. <laughs> you with the muscles over there. So, I mean, here's the the jobbers, the amazing French Canadians actually getting a win over a young tag team. But it makes sense in the story that's being told of the collapse of the American males. Right. Uh, I thought that was overall like a fun little tag match. It was short. Nothing was um, ugly. I mean, there was that body slam that looked like injurious, but it's not like um, it's not like it looked bad. It looked like a guy trying to hurt his opponent right. <laughs> and being effective. So, yeah, yeah, it, it only looked bad in the sense that it looked like I wouldn't want it to happen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. And I always think like for these sort of matches have endings that are based on like miscommunication between like teammates yeah. or like tag team partners that uh, it's all about the execution if it plays off well. And I felt like it did in this case. So it was like, it was a short and like pretty to the point um, match and it served its purpose for the storyline. So, and also why not get the amazing French Canadians like a win on Nitro if they're supposedly having like this feud with Harlem Heat that's going to be. Yeah. That, that is a pay-per-view match, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, basically every every section of this match served uh, a purpose and extended either some sort of storyline or some sort of event that's going to be referenced in the future. And, I mean, that's pretty much all you can ask for out of a TV match, right? Absolutely. Good, good quality wrestling and move those storylines forward. And this match did all of that. And if Colonel Robert Parker is going to have that outstanding outfit, you got to get it on <laughs> Nitro. <laughs> That should not be saved just for Saturday night. That's a Nitro material outfit. Right. The Sultans don't consider Saturday night canon anyway, so I'm glad that we get to see it <laughs> on an actual event that happened. I, I feel like that's fair. I think unless that unless Nitro like retcons something from Saturday night into canon, that yeah. like it's pretty much not canon. <laughs> we come back from commercial to find some guys in the crowd who have Hogan and Piper toys, which have to be WWF licensed products. Pro- yes. Um, because there's no way WCW's pumping out Piper toys at this point. Right. Today plugs WCWWrestling.com, which has apparently been rescued by the uh, from those vandals that we mentioned last week. Yeah, those vandals that put the one line at the top. <laughs> and it now has new unspecified features. Ooh. 
We still have nothing confirmed on Roddy Piper, says Tanae, as the Dungeon of Doom music plays, and out comes Hugh Morris. He is the latest of WCW's Big and Bad tour that the total package Lex Luger is on. Lex comes to the ring, gets in, and uh, this week they're giving him the cane pyro, the all four uh, mm-hmm. ring posts, yeah. shooting out spooters. Uh, he gets a very good reaction from the crowd. Having him have a big win streak of big, ugly, tough guys is really working. He, it's being very effective. Yeah, they've done this a couple of times with Luger, haven't they? Where they, you know, if he if he's got a big match coming up in a in a month or two, they send him on this as you call it the big and bad tour, where he racks up guys that are you know significantly larger than your typical human being to to build up his credibility. Yeah, not only with Luger, but anyone who's facing and he's not, but anyone who's facing the giant tends to get similar treatment. Where it's like, okay, you beat Ron Stud. Uh, you'll just like any other big guys that we can think of. Roadblock, Roadblock is the new yeah. one, certainly. I forget. Did you already mention is Roadblock going to be a member of the World War Three Battle Royal? Uh, they mention we... it later on the show, I believe. Sweet. I know for sure that he is, um, and I Sweet. think they mentioned it on the show tonight. But I'm I not want positive. more Roadblock in our lives. <laughs> the announcers talk more about Piper's potential whereabouts and say they don't know if Sting is in the building tonight or not. So... <laughs> Here's the thing. When they talk about, like, if someone's in the building or not, yeah, it's not a matter of, like, either you see them or you don't. I mean, how is there, like, a debate or if you yeah. have to go do further investigation? Because there's only so many places you could be in the building. Yeah, this is not – I mean, it is an arena, but it's not an especially large one. And also, if someone with, like, the personality of Roddy Piper is in the building, <laughs> I think it would be easy to figure that out. Yeah, he's not having a quiet tea in an office somewhere. Right. He's not secluded in a closet to make sure no one realizes he's there or anything like that. He's going to make his presence known. Look for the yelling guy with the 13 kids falling around. <laughs> The two men circle each other, and Morris is able to immediately get Lex up for a scoop slam. We then get an inset Arn Anderson promo. As Morris stays firmly in control, Arn warns Lex that if he thinks he broke the Enforcer's will at Halloween Havoc, he is sorely mistaken. Arn says he has a shot at revenge at World War III, and they'll be giving each other everything they've got, because if either one of them can take the other out before the Battle Royal, that means they've also managed to improve their odds. I really liked uh, yeah. pumping yeah. up their match and pumping up that they're both in the Battle Royal at the same time. I thought that was awesome. You want someone to hit all their marks? You get double A on the job. An interesting note about double A is uh, the injury that ends his career. I mean, it's kind of a, a compound thing over years of taking damage. Yeah. But the thing that like kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back or the enforcer's back. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of proud it. of myself for that one. Sorry, um, there, was, there was an expression on your face when you realized how good that was. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it was supposedly the Halloween Havoc match, so he is okay. actually having. He has. It's. Uh, I think people may not know that he had several matches after the thing that really jacked him up, and and World War Three is is one of those. Oh, so these are all matches we should be cringing about. Yes, he should not be having these matches. Okay. But I don't think he knows yet the extent to which he is actually. I think he just thinks like, ah, oh, it's one more back problem, and he finally goes and sees a doctor, and they're like, oh, no, don't do this anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like that uh, that scene from The Wrestler. When yes, he's like, yeah. And he's like, no, you should not do that anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Luger takes over for a second until he telegraphs a back body drop and Morris takes advantage. The crowd chants, we want Sting, as Morris suplexes Luger. Luger absolutely no-sells this, and Morris turns around to a defiant Flexi Lexi. 
Luger then suplexes Morris and whips him into a corner, hip-tossing him as he stumbles forward. Lex again poses to a big pop. Morris gets a cheap shot and a big corner splash. Tanae plugs a WCW house show happening in Baltimore this Saturday and says that Ric Flair will be there. And uh, I might have this later in my notes, but I, I wanted to mention this. We've talked a little bit in the past couple weeks. Um, Sullivan and Benoit have been cutting promos on each other, mm-hmm. and Sullivan keeps talking about Baltimore and stuff. And I, just because I didn't know exactly where World War Three was happening, I assumed that the match was at World War Three. It's actually the house show in Baltimore that they have been building on Nitro for like weeks. He's been talking about, I'm going to beat you up in Baltimore. That's where I beat you up in the bathroom, and it's going to happen again. That they're doing that level of like buildup for a house show match between Benoit and Kevin Sullivan. That's so weird. It is. I guess they just really want a big gate <laughs> in Baltimore. I, I don't know. Uh, Ric Flair is going to be at the house show, so yeah, they're they're really pulling out all the stops. Morris steps on Luger's chest for a minute until Mark Curtis stops him. Morris hits a lot of clubbing blows and other bullshit. <laughs> Luger finally gets back into things with some similar punchy kicky bullshit and a loaded forearm shot but Morris is able to hit an elbow to take Lex down Morris goes up for a big splash that Luger avoids Luger calls for the torture rack and gets Morris up pretty easily Morris submits and Luger wins via torture rack in about four and a half minutes uh, there's some kind of something that Luger doesn't like. Randy Anderson wants to raise his hand, but Lex seems pissed or confused about something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you think? What do you think happened here? I've got a theory, but I'd I'd like to hear yours first. It seems to be that Morris submitted too early, or that Lex didn't realize that that Morris had actually given up. Okay, that was my all I could figure. What do you got? Well, because w- when I was watching it, it looked like. Lex sort of like got him sort of half up and then was kind of trying to adjust him. And like you were saying, that's when the bell rang. And it it seemed to me like Luger was pissed that he didn't get to actually show, okay, I've got Hugh, he's up, he's totally locked in. Sure. So, yeah, I I thought it was definitely a combination of, of Lex felt like the bell got called too soon. And whether that was, you know, the ref's responsibility or whether that was Morris quitting too soon, um, I feel like Lex didn't feel like he got the opportunity to really show off. That makes sense. Yeah, he likes to do a little bit of a little bit of the little jumpy jumpy action while he has him in the rack that he didn't get the opportunity to. So that might be why he's a little bit pissed. He, he was not racked to his satisfaction, pretty much. Larry gives a good explanation on commentary, uh, whether this was the plan or whether he's covering, who knows. But he says that the dungeon of, that Morris gave up right away so that the dungeon could be at full strength for the uh, pay-per-view, the Battle Royal. I like that. I thought, like, hey, you know what? That's a Why did this big, tough guy give up instantly? Yeah. This is a random match on Nitro. He knows the real prize is coming up in six days. I, d- I just feel like that if you're being, like, placed up into the torture rack, you're not thinking about, like, your long-term prospect- prospects. Sure. You're, you're kind of like, let's... Yeah, well, I mean, maybe just in general being like, I don't want to be injured, and I know I just, I'm not able to escape yeah. the torture rack. Well, yeah, like it's like that, a good MMA fighter who's like instantly recognizes that a guy's got him in a hold that could do some real damage and just taps immediately because they're like, the last thing I want him doing is wrenching it at all. Like, I, he's got it. I'm done. It's yeah, like wh- when you get, when they, like when Ronda puts someone in the arm bar and it's yeah. like, I don't want you to break my elbow, so right. I'll tap out right away. Yeah, it's uh, it's like what Disco used to do whenever anybody would put him in a submission. Yeah, just I, I got to be healthy enough to dance. Right. So I'm going <laughs> to tap out right away. 
Hugh's obviously been been going to the uh, Gilbardi school of submissions. <laughs> mean Gene joins Lex in the ring. All right, gentlemen, I think both of you are going to have to agree. Larry, and of course you, Mike, today. Very impressive effort on the part of the total package, Lex Luger. This man, Hugh Morris, who I have the utmost respect for, well over 300 pounds, and it's week after week after week, Lex Luger, you are on a tear. Well, you know, I may be on a tear. A little man I'm going my way for a change, but in World War III coming up, you're not one-on-one. -on -one. There's 60 of the very best in the world representing WCW's going after one thing, and that's a shot at Hollywood, Hulk Hogan, and the NWO. That's right. Lex Luger, you've got to be the odds-on favorite to win this now from what I've seen in the past three or four weeks, and I sat home for this. a couple of months at home, and hey. I'm most impressed. Hey, oh, gee, we wondered where Wait he was at. What is this? That's, that's not a golf club a in his hand. Hey, and a baseball bat. is highly unusual. I, I would have to say, Mike and Larry, look at this. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. What does this mean? You got me, brother. Sting definitely went off the deep end. We saw him last week attack Jeff Jarrett for no reason. Now he comes in and does this. What is the man thinking? Even I, as brilliant as I am psychologically, can't figure out Sting's mind. Lex Luger. Lex Luger. Lex, here's a man that, that you know better than anybody in the... What, what do you make of this? Luger. He's not going to talk to me. He's not going to talk to me, ladies and gentlemen. All of this in advance of World War III next Sunday on pay-per-view Monday night through the most explosive television program on the air. We're going to be right back. Gene says that Luger just beat a man that Okerlund has the utmost respect for. <laughs> I don't know what Hugh Morris did that got the utmost respect for me and Gene. Uh, Maybe he says, got him into a, a, an ICP show last time they were in Detroit. <laughs> mean Gene uh, says that Lex has been on a tear lately, and Lex agrees, but says that it doesn't matter as soon he's going to be up against 60 men, and only one is going to get a shot at Hulk Hogan's title. The crowd starts to go crazy, and that's because Sting has entered through them and is hopping over the barricade. As the Stinger makes his way into the ring, Luger finally notices. Sting is carrying an aluminum baseball bat with him this week. Uh, notably, it's not the black bat that Sting kind of becomes more famous for. Mm -hmm. This is like your your dad's softball bat. Yeah, is this... You You guys have... I haven't really watched a lot of these surrounding nitros because we're not here yet. Um, is this Sting's first appearance with the bat that you know you're aware of? Yes, it's the first time that awesome. he's had a bat. Yep, awesome. The only time we've seen bats previously have been in the hands of Hall and Nash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is one they, they probably picked up from Dick's Sporting Goods before the show. <laughs> yes. Sent an intern uh, yeah, out. Maybe, maybe Sid left some in the like production ah, show. Uh, he hey, loves softball, right? Hey, we're just having fun here. <laughs> Gene steps back, and without a mic, we can't get exactly what Lex is saying to Sting, but he tries talking to his old friend. Sting taps Lex on the chest with the bat, then uses it to lift Luger's chin up. 
He then presses the end of the bat into Luger's chest and uses it to shove Luger back a few steps. Luger steps back towards Sting, but he's more confused than angry. He's not like, it's that doesn't seem like Sting is about to beat him with the bat. He's just kind of shoving him with it. Mm-hmm. And Lex is just like, hey, come on, man. <laughs> not cool. <laughs> I, I think that more confused than fill in the blank is a perfect description for Lex Luger. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Sting flips the bat around and hands it to Lex before turning around and simply walking out of the ring. Luger is baffled. Mean Gene is baffled. Larry, who says that normally he's a genius psychologically, (laughs) admits to also being baffled. I'm a little baffled, I'll be honest. I like that he can't even just say, I'm confused about that, with saying, you know, normally I'm a genius who's not confused about anything. This time, I am confused about something. Right. And, and as we know, as a golden rule for being a genius is stating you're a genius yes, out loud. absolutely. Gene asks Luger to comment on what just happened, and Lex wanders around with the bat a little bit before telling Gene that he has no comment. So Gene instead sends us to a commercial. Do you think he was trying to think of something to say and couldn't? Or No, like... no, I think he was trying to like sell, like, I'm confused, I'm sort of weirded out. Yeah. And I don't feel like talking about this very personal thing with Mean Gene and thousands of fans right mm-hmm. now. Very good. What did you guys think about the match with Lex and Morris? I thought it was a fine TV match between Lex and a big man about what you'd expect. It, I mean, it's still serving the purpose of that storyline of him beating all the like these big uglies um, with, you know, it, it's Luger. It's just a few minutes. It's. Everything up until the rack's not even that memorable anyway. So yeah. it, it did serve its purpose to kind of like have Luger in the ring for this moment with Sting. Yeah, overall it was, you know, it was a Lex Luger-Hugh Morris match. You're not going to get a ton of, you know, technical expertise, but they did a lot of punchy punches, a lot of kicky kicks, and mm-hmm. and they, they told the story that, that they needed to tell. So effective, if nothing else. So then after the match, we've got the stuff with Sting, the Lex promo. Uh, Dave, what were your thoughts on the angle there? So, I mean, off the top of my head, I didn't remember if this is the first time that Sting had a bat or not. Um, but since you're mentioning that it is, we're learning right away that Sting, he knows how to use utilize that bat pretty well. Like, yeah. he, he works... He works a good bat, as they might say. Yeah, especially, like, using it to pick up Lex's chin and mm-hmm. then, like, the thing where he flips it back one-handedly and hands the the holding end. I don't know what you call it. The, the handle? Yeah, instead of the... Yeah, he, he flips the barrel around to his own hand so he can hand the bat to Lex. Yeah. And he and does that very smoothly. There's, like, there's so much that's being told there yeah. just by him use, using the bat. And, yeah, it's just... It's really well done. I like, like, there is that moment when he turns and walks away where he's basically like, I'm presenting you the option just to betray me if yeah. you want to. Um, yeah, it just, like, with, because we're not quite there yet, but we're at, when we get to the point where it stings all action and no talk, yeah, he's showing that he can effectively do this, like, just the body language. Yeah, he's little really, small really touches, yeah. I, I think yeah. you're absolutely right about that, Dave. Yeah, I, I thought it was good. I'm, I mean... My my saddest, the saddest thing in my heart uh, about the NWO, say what you will about how it ends up, is that it effectively marked the end of the greatest angle and storyline, in my opinion, of super best friends Sting and Luger. Like, when, when they were tagging <laughs> yeah. together and Luger was heelish when Sting wasn't paying attention, and then he was a, he was a total face when Sting was. I, I got so much joy out of their interactions 
um, that to, to see that sort of fall by the wayside as this new angle is, is taking over the company. I mean, it makes sense, but it's nice to see those two guys back in the ring interacting in, in, in any kind of way because it just reminds me of, of how much happiness they gave me running around like two idiots winning the tag team championships. Yeah, uh, I don't really think I have anything to add. I thought it was an effective segment, and mm-hmm. you guys really uh, wrapped it nice. We come back from an ad break to a 10-second countdown for Nitro's second hour. Pyro goes off, and Eric Bischoff takes over from Tanay, welcoming us to the second half of the show. Eric tells us that Flair is here, Hogan is here, and we've got a whole lot of action left to go. The first thing we see is a replay of Saturday Night, where Tony Schiavone was interviewing Nick Patrick and Patrick's lawyer, Alan Sharp. During this interview, Chris Jericho and Teddy Long showed up, and Long claimed that Jericho uh, could beat Nick Patrick up with one hand tied behind his back. Uh-oh. Sharp declared that this was somehow a legally <laughs> binding verbal agreement. And so this Sunday at World War Three, we will, yes, have Nick Patrick, the referee, versus Chris Jericho, who will have one hand tied behind his back. Well, I mean, Alan Sharp is a lawyer. He just doesn't play one on TV, so... <laughs> <laughs> Out comes a returning Johnny Grunge, who is fresh off knee surgery and looking about 30 pounds heavier. Mm. <laughs> he was enjoying his time at home. Oh, he he sure was. <laughs> his opponent. Why, why, why of either public enemy member are we getting him in the singles action? Uh, yeah. It's... When, when I think every time we've seen them, it's clear Rocco Rock is the one that carries the team. Why would they bring out the other guy that just got done with surgery does not look ready to wrestle, and it's just not the of the two guys the one we're interested in. Yeah. <laughs> Out next is his opponent, Chris Jericho, and uh, this might be the week that he switched from his initial generic WCW theme to the ripoff of Evenflow that Cyclope used last week uh-huh. uh, because the WWE Network has now started putting Chris Jericho coming out to break the walls down. Which, it's just wrong. It's just wrong to hear that song with a WCW yeah. logo. It's, it feels very weird. Um, I, mean, I get if, why they have to legally do something. I mean, if you can hear it because the this uh, editing in is really awful. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too, David. It's super, like, almost underwater and way in the background of everything else. Hmm. I mean, it, this is the sort of thing where it's like, are, are we better off just with nothing or with this? And I feel like nothing would be better or just making up your own generic or putting that previous generic music in there. Like it seemed like they have a lot of options besides like I was talking earlier about retconning. Like this doesn't make sense either. Yeah. It like, doesn't it's, fit it's, his character and what Jericho is doing right now. I mean, it's like uh, breaking the wall down for Y2J in which like, I don't even think we were talking about Y2K at this point. In no, 96. gosh, no, no. Yeah. I think I might have heard a, one or two episodes of Art Bell talking about Y2K in 1996, <laughs> but it was a, it was just a one-off show at that point. Well, here to call all the action is our own... Uh, I always try to think of something. Y2 Dave? Y2 Dave. Do I need to do my own leaders now? Yes, our own Y2 Dave. <laughs> so this match starts off, and to the shock, the shock of everyone watching, it begins with an exchange of hammerlocks. <laughs> this, as you will find out, is the high point of the match. This match is trying to be back and forth, but Johnny Grunge is simply too slow for that to work well. Jericho misses a moonsault from the top rope, and Grunge follows up quickly with a clothesline and a cabbage patch. 
Grunge counters a Jericho Sunset Flip with a sit-down pin attempt for two. And it's really weird because it looks like Grunge doesn't, like, care if he kicks out or not. Right, there's, yeah. There, there's a general attitude around Johnny Grunge that seems like he does. he's mailing this in as hard as possible. Jericho hits a jump spin wheel kick, then comes off the top rope with a drop kick to send Grunge to the arena floor. Johnny Grunge is frustrated now and grabs a steel chair, but Jericho manages to sidestep the weapon and knock Grunge off the apron yet again. Grunge drops Jericho across the top rope with a stun gun, then returns to his trusty steel chair. He sets it up in the middle of the ring and uses an atomic drop to sit Jericho on it. I would just like to note for the record, there was nothing mentioned beforehand of this being no disqualification. <laughs> or Raven's rules, even. yeah. Or Raven's rules, even. Yeah. <laughs> he clotheslines Jericho off the chair, to which the referee pretty much uh, shrugs and removes the chair from the ring. <laughs> now Grunge, realizing he can do pretty much whatever he wants, heads out to the ring to retrieve a table. He sets the table up in the ring and puts Jericho on it, again to the indifference of the referee. Uh, Grunge goes to the top rope with steel chair in hand and dives, but Jericho moves out of the way. By the way, this might sound like it's very exciting, but this there's like no enthusiasm to this. Like, yeah, I've I, never... I would like to give you a lot of credit. You're making this way more interesting than it actually was, Dave. <laughs> like, I've never seen a guy jump off the top rope with a steel chair and go through a table and just have no enthusiasm. Like, I, I'm just like, okay, that's that happened, I guess. It's like even physics was bored with this match. Right. <laughs> anyway, Jericho follows up with a missile drop kick from the top rope and scores the pinfall victory. So really, this is a match that's supposed to make Jericho look good leading into his very, very exciting and very much wanted match against Nick Patrick. But Johnny Grunge is not interested in, in putting any effort into this. Again, I don't know why we got him when there's many other guys that didn't just have knee surgery and didn't just gain 30 pounds that could have done this instead. Jericho's win gets a huge pop, but I'm not sure what's fake audio as they still are playing his fake music. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm not really sure if that's fake crowd noise or not. It very well could be. After replays, we go to Mean Gene and Chris Jericho inside the ring. Thank you very much, Chris Jericho. We just had a, a mystery guest here. I think you know who was standing behind us after the challenge that was made this past weekend. He is the very controversial WCW official, Nick Patrick, the man who you're going to meet at World War III. Yes, Teddy Long. Excuse me a minute, Gene. I don't mean to be rude, but I just want to say something to you, Chris. You know, this thing, this one arm tied behind your back match with Nick Patrick, it might be a little too much for you. I might have, you know what I mean, I might open my mouth one too many times. I just want to apologize. Teddy, hold on, hold on. There's no need for apologies, Teddy. You're a very intelligent man, and you've always had great ideas when it comes to wrestling. Now, your idea for me to face Nick Patrick with one arm tied behind my back is not a detriment, it's a favor, because that's the only way a coward like Patrick would get in the ring with me is with one arm tied behind my back. Watch out, Patrick, because we're going to get revenge on you. May stick that arm somewhere. I thank you very much, Chris Jericho, Teddy Long. Stay tuned. More Nitro continues. Don't go away. Okerlund asks Jericho about Nick Patrick, but is interrupted by Teddy Long. Long apologizes to Jericho for opening his mouth and getting that whole match at the pay-per-view set up. I think he should apologize to us for getting that match (laughs) set up. (laughs) Jericho says that Long has always had great ideas for wrestling, and this is just another one of them. 
So he's he's enthused about this one hand. Uh, that's not true according to Jericho's book. He was not looking forward to this at all. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't blame him for feeling that way. He says that the this is the only way that a coward like Nick Patrick would have agreed to get in the ring with him. After a commercial, we come back to the announce desk, and Eric Bischoff talks a mile a minute about Roddy Piper, Hulk Hogan, Sting, and Ric Flair. He also noticeably rubs his nostrils, and boy, I wonder why his <laughs> nostril might be bothering him while he's talking that fast. <laughs> Whoops. He's, he's basically doing his Micro Machines guy impression. It's <laughs> insane. He might just be excited about he's got a big part of the show coming up later. So I it, there's a lot of different reasons. I'm just, maybe he has a cold going on. Who knows? <laughs> it could be. As Bishop talks, he's interrupted by the NWO's music. Is here a lot of stuff going on as we get ready to get into World War III. So what does that mean? What is going on now? It means more NWO. We saw them out here. Are they going earlier. to the ring now? Well, they're going somewhere. Well, they're not scheduled now, are they? Not, a, not on any of my paperwork there, Nat. Not on nothing of mine either. Hollywood Hogan strutting his stuff along with I'm Vincent getting out of here. Deep, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. See ya. Hey, hey. Heenan. Yo, 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 it's time for Hollywood, brother. And Mr. Bischoff, you being the foundation of the WCW, the NWO, courtesy of Hollywood, is here to set the family record straight. Tell everybody out there that I'm the biggest superstar and that I'm a bigger icon than the rowdy, red-headed Roddy Piper. Well, I, tell them. I think some of these people may disagree with that. I, mean, I said, tell them that I'm a bigger icon than Roddy Roddy Piper. All right, Hollywood, if, if it makes you feel better, if that's what you want to hear, <laughs> you're, you're a bigger icon than Roddy Told Roddy you. Piper. Hey, now tell them that Roddy Roddy Piper is scared to death of Hollywood, and he wouldn't dare show his face around here. Tell them. I mean, not everybody would agree with that. Tell him that Roddy Piper is afraid of Hollywood. Okay, okay. If that's what you want to hear, Hollywood. If that's what it takes to get you off this now, side. Now, Bischoff. He's afraid. Tell him that if Hollywood stood on his bank account and Piper stood on his bank account, he'd look like a midget at high noon standing next to me. Tell him that Hollywood is a hundred times richer than Piper. Whatever you want, Hollywood. You are a hundred times richer than Rowdy Roddy Piper. Whatever you want. Does it make you happy? You're doing good. That's what we wanted to hear. Can now we have that everybody knows that Hollywood and the NWO is running the show, carry on. Thank you very much. I, I apologize. Gene, please take it. Out comes Hulk Hogan, Vincent, Ted DiBiase, and Liz, who is no longer wearing a sexy Santa suit and now has an NWO shirt over her sparkly blue dress. And th when it comes to the NWO members, this is arguably 
the lowest ranked members we're getting right now, right? <laughs> other, yeah, other than Hogan, I suppose. Right. Yeah, and, and can I point out just how offensive it is for me to see the NWA world title held by the likes of, of, of Ric Flair and Sting are over the shoulder of fucking Virgil? Yeah, that's not... <laughs> just it visually, it makes me sick. I mean, if you feel that way, it's only 96, so you better buckle up for some of these other ones. <laughs> uh, I still don't... It's not clear what the deal is with Liz. Like, does Hulk Hogan own her now that he beat Randy Savage? Is she a slave? Is it that she she's doing this reluctantly because he's getting her some Hollywood parts so that even though she doesn't like it, she is still a willing participant? It's all completely unclear if like she might she might be a kidnapping victim if, right if we don't know they, they really should clear that up so that we know whether we should call the police or not trust her or and i mean as it seemed like with her like whole marriage with savage maybe she just suffers from stockholm syndrome pretty easily oof oh sort of off top did either of you guys watch the the viceland doc on her and savage I haven't watched any of those yet. I no. would like to watch all of them. They're just really, the really time. good. Yeah. The NWO makes their way to the announce area, so Heenan beats a hasty retreat. Hogan grabs a mic and declares that it's time for Hollywood. Hogan demands that Eric, the face of WCW, declare that Hogan is the bigger icon and superstar than Roddy Piper. Eric protests, but Hogan insists, and Eric begrudgingly says it. Hogan next demands that Eric say that Piper is scared of Hogan. Again, Eric protests, but does uh, but does say it upon some more pushing. He keeps doing the like, okay, if that's what you want to hear, if that's what you need me to say, and then he'll just say whatever Hogan wants. Mm-hmm. Right, a very disturbing insight into Hogan and Bischoff's relationship, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> At the last one, Bischoff is like, okay, Hogan, if that's what it takes to get you off. And I think that- he might have been saying off stage, <laughs> but he doesn't actually say the word stage. <laughs> a little Freudian slip there. Yeah. Next, Hogan wants to hear Eric say that he's a hundred times richer than Roddy Piper, so Eric says it. Now that everyone knows the NWO and Hogan are running the show, he allows Bischoff to carry on. Eric apologizes for that and tosses it over to Mean Gene, who is in the aisle, joined by Diamond Dallas Page. Eric, it sounds to me like uh, they're putting the heat on you over there at the at the broadcast table. Diamond Dallas Page, we've just seen members of the NWO, the New World Order here. And last week in this very television program, I think they made you an offer that indeed you did refuse. You said they would be the eighth man at the New World Order. Now you can imagine how Larry Fortensky felt when he was chosen number eight. Whatever, Gene. Since Scott Hall and Kevin Nash came back to the WCW, wait a minute, the NWO, whatever. And they've been wreaking havoc everywhere. You'll notice, Gene, whenever anything went down, DDP was nowhere to be found. And there's a reason for that. I let them do their thing, and I do mine. And now they're cutting into my time again. Gentlemen, I think he has made it perfectly clear, and I don't want to be bounced around here by the New World Order. He has made it perfectly clear he's not going to go your direction. Yes, Dallas... Am I, am I right on that? I didn't even hear what you said with all Hey, you get your wake-up call yet? You figure it out? Huh? You get it? Get what? You, you don't get it. 
that I got. I didn't appreciate that comment thrown in my face about Bischoff last night, last week. That's one thing I get. <laughs> he doesn't get it. He really doesn't get it. He don't know. I know. Uh, what's the he problem? Don't I don't understand why we just don't take him out quick, fast, in a hurry like we do all the Hogan's friends. Punk him. That's what we need to do. Take it easy. Guys, guys, what? Wait a minute now. There's got to be. You don't know. You know. I know. Hey, you know. You know. You know this business. Hey. Good for you. Good for you. I got a little quote from you. Stanley Kubrick, 2001 Space Odyssey. It's going to be something very beautiful happen tonight. Very beautiful. All right, the gentleman from the New World Order, Hall Nash, the giant, and of course, six. What a man who stands alone. That's where the self-high five comes from. I, I, don't, I don't know what, uh, what he meant. Something is supposed to be happening tonight. That's a promise from the New World Order. And I still don't know the position of Diamond Dallas Page. That's one for the, well, for you to figure out. Let's get back to action, Eric. Gene asked Paige about last week when Paige refused to join the NWO as being asked after being asked to be the eighth member of the group. Gene says that Paige must now know how Larry Fortensky felt. Hmm? Larry Fortensky, of course, as we all remember, was a construction <laughs> worker known for being the eighth marriage to actress Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, of course, right, Larry yeah, Fortensky. Now that, right, right, yeah, that Larry right. Fortensky. <laughs> Uh, those two met in 1988 at the Betty Ford Clinic, where they were both trying to beat addictions. They got married in 1991 with Eddie Murphy, Quincy Jones, Macaulay Culkin, and Nancy Reagan all in attendance. And uh, the reference is actually p pretty timely, as they got divorced only weeks before this episode. Uh, and uh, it was <laughs> their divorce came just a couple weeks after their fifth anniversary. And uh, surely in a giant coincidence... They had a prenuptial agreement that gave Larry one million dollars if the marriage were to go longer than five years. <clears throat> why hmm. was why was that particular stipulation in their prenuptials? Uh, maybe just because Liz Taylor was on her eighth marriage and yeah, was like, was... "I'm tired of being in the tabloids for my constant divorces, so give me at least five solid years of marriage <laughs> before you leave me." <laughs> yeah, before you mentioned it, I was actually kind of impressed that they made it all the way from '88. <laughs> Page says that ever since Hall and Nash and the NWO showed up, he stays out of their business and does his own thing. Out comes Hall, Nash, the Giant, and Six. Hall cryptically asks Page if he got his wake-up call yet. Yeah, did you figure it out? Asked Nash. Page doesn't know what they're talking about, and they seem surprised and amused. Six says that he knows what's up, but clearly the giant doesn't. Uh, the giant is like, why aren't we just beating this guy up? Like, what are you got goofballs doing? Right. And so they're kind of like laughing at the giant a little bit for not uh, knowing what's going on either. Which I don't think is fair because I get the distinct impression that Six is absolutely bullshitting here. <laughs> that he, he's just making he's up He's just that, that he kid. He's like, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, too. <laughs> I just want you to tell me what it is. Right, just, just say I it so know that I know that you right. know. <laughs> Nash then completely butchers a quote that he attributes to Stanley Kubrick and the movie uh, that Kubrick wrote and directed, 2001 A Space Odyssey. What Nash says is, quote,
Hey, it's Tim here in the editing booth. Uh, we lost the original audio for a couple seconds here, so I'm just dropping in. You can tell that the recording is different because I'm using a different mic. Uh, the thing that Nash said is, quote, it's going to be something very beautiful happen here tonight. All right, back to the original recording. Nash repeats, very beautiful, and Gene starts to sign off, but Paige interrupts him and says that he stands alone, and that's where his self-high-five comes from. Gene ends the segment and sends us back to Eric. Uh, but before we move on, I want to explain that the actual movie uh, that Nash is trying to quote, uh, the quote that the character says is, uh, one person says something is going to happen, another character asks them what, and he says something wonderful, not something beautiful. Right. Uh, also, that movie is not in 2001 A Space Odyssey. It is in its much less loved sequel, 1984's 2010 The Year We Make Contact. A movie that had absolutely no involvement from Stanley Kubrick. So Nash badly misquoted a movie, named the wrong movie, and gave the wrong guy credit for writing it. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. He's like, look how witty and, and pop culture aware I am, and then he just blunders it totally. As Bobby Eaton makes his way to the ring, Eric says that the NWO is getting to be too much, and he keeps getting asked why he lets them come out and get a mic, uh, and he claims that if he tried to censor them, it would only make people more interested in what they have to say. Tanae and Bobby rejoin the broadcast as Jeff Jarrett makes his way to the ring. Here to call all the action is our own Tennessee stud, Dave Amantorp. <laughs> Sweet. Okay, so... <laughs> Let's just quickly get this one out of the way, shall we? A collar and elbow tie-up quickly turns into a hip toss from Jeff Jarrett. The two exchange wild haymakers, and an atomic drop from Jarrett seems to have injured uh, Eaton's quad or knee or something like that. Eaton stumbles out of the ring, and he pulls Jarrett out with him. After some brief brawling out of the ring, we return inside where Jarrett hits Eaton with a suplex. Meanwhile, the nature boy Ric Flair shows up at ringside, at, with perfect timing as Jeff Jarrett slaps on the figure four for what I refer to as the quick-ass victory. <laughs> there really was nothing else to that match besides yeah. it was just setting up for Jarrett to be in the ring when Nature Boy shows up. So, And and despite that, despite being a really short match, Bobby Eaton still seems to have injured himself. <laughs> Randy Anderson raises Jarrett's hand and Jarrett struts. Flair joins him in the ring, and Mean Gene is right behind him. Flair struts as best he can with a big-ass cast on one arm. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and he has it on over a ridiculous Cosby sweater, like the Cosbyest Cosby sweater you've ever seen <laughs> on a human being. That's a massive contraption he's got strapped to himself. Gene asks Jarrett about his rematch with the Giant coming up this Sunday, and notes that Jarrett was never chokeslammed during their first encounter. Jarrett says that's right. And it's time for WCW to put their personal differences aside. He hypes himself and Flair, but Gene interrupts to ask about the attack by Sting last week. Jarrett says with the four horsemen distracted by fighting each other, the clowns came down to ringside. Hmm. But he doesn't want to talk about dissension in WCW. Mm -mm. He wants to talk about this Sunday. He claims to have chopped the giant down to size before, apparently referring to a match in which he was getting his ass beat until Flair low-blowed his opponent. Yeah. Uh, and Jarrett claims that he's going to do it again. Flair declares that Jeff Jarrett is good to go. Flair says that Dr. Jim fixed him up real good, and he's going to be back real soon. But until then, 
He asks if Jarrett can style and profile. I sure can. Can he walk the aisle? I sure can. Can he dance all night? I sure can. And like six more things that <laughs> yeah. I didn't write down. <laughs> In which Jarrett never says, uh, no, I can't really yeah, do that. Yeah, that one I can't do. I'm not sorry. very good at that. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. Yeah. Um, 506 is okay, right? As we see Sting looking on from somewhere, Flair addresses Arn, Benoit, and Mongo, saying that Jarrett is in the Horseman because the Nature Ugh. Boy, the lead Horseman, says so. This is just the worst. This Je- this Jeff Jarrett successor to Ric Flair yeah. bullshit, man. I just it's I think it's the, one of the things that poisoned me against Jeff Jarrett for like the next twenty years is this angle. Yeah, I kind of thought the first few weeks of Jarrett on Nitro were good, and then it took a real nosedive, and this thing where it it makes Jarrett look like a dickhead, which is kind of okay because he's... Right. It looks like he's turning into a dickhead heel, but the problem is that it makes Flair less cool. That, like, right, everyone makes, else is it, like, look, this guy's a dickhead, and Flair is like, no, he's just as good as me. It's like, no, he's not. And he, he's clearly not. And... I, and I was I was never quite a hundred percent sure, like as it was going on, whether we were supposed to think that Jarrett was delusional, and we're like laughing at him for thinking that he's as good as Ric Flair. Right. But with this like full official like in ring endorsement, it it really makes it look like Flair is like trying to tell us. Hey, you need to love this guy. He's just like me. Right. You all, love, but he's not. He's fucking Jeff Jarrett, and he does Jeff Jarrett things, and that's fine. And he can be his own shit. Mm. But to to set him up as this like pseudo Ric Flair replacement, like it just comes off so bad to me. Anyway, completely agree. It's just setting him up for failure. Where right. it's like. It's not like Jeff Jarrett's not an established name on his own. I mean, it would be different if it was like a relatively new name that had like maybe kind of more characteristics of Ric Flair. That, But like we know who Jeff Jarrett is and people that either like him or don't like him have made up their mind about him. It's not this endorsement. It's sort of like um, when we were going through all those years, I mean, still continuous of people not liking Roman Reigns. Yeah. And then having The Rock try to endorse him after he won the oh, Rumble. Oh, God, right. And then it was just like, no, now we don't like you, Rock, for trying right. to do that. Yeah. Like, all this is going to do is make people kind of be like, why, why is Flair doing this? Like, why would Flair ever think anyone can match up to him? That's not in his character at all. Why would? And if, if he was going to pick someone, why would it be Jeff Jarrett? Right. Because he also struts? Because he, they, that's the only thing. Right. He's got blonde hair? Uh that's that's their two similarities. Right. Blonde hair and a silly strut. Flair and Jarrett strut one more time to an okay pop as the crowd is now largely distracted at having spotted Sting in the upper deck. So, like, a lot of yeah. them are just craning their neck and seeing if he's going to do anything. <laughs> uh, but Gene throws it to commercial, and I think Sting just walked off during the commercial break. So, <laughs> Spoilers, Sting does nothing until Starcade. I kind of wonder when um, when the camera's not looking at him, do they just turn the spotlight off on Sting? <laughs> He's just standing there. Yeah, I don't know. That there was a. This is different, but it's it's a raw that I watched recently. It might be the raw that's on during this Nitro, where Ahmed Johnson is coming back from injury and he mm-hmm. sits and watches a, a Farouk match, I believe. Okay. And he's sitting like in the stands, and they keep a spotlight on him the whole time. And I'm just thinking <laughs> that has to suck for him. Just this bright ass light on him. The He's entire not seeing anything. He's supposed to be <laughs> scouting. 
When we return from an ad break, it's time for Lee Marshall's Road Report. And this week, he's in Norfolk, Virginia, the site of World War III. He's totally Is in he? Norfolk, Virginia. <laughs> he's yes. not in a closet somewhere in the arena. Yeah, he's not in a payphone that's out in the concourse. Yeah. <laughs> he's exceptionally salesman-y tonight, as he asks Bobby about the proper inflection and the weasel chant. Uh... After he signs off, Bobby instructs uh, him to walk east from Norfolk until he finds himself in water, a.k.a. the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> and then to just keep walking. <laughs> just just, just keep on going. You're fine. <laughs> the Dungeon of Doom music plays, and out comes Big Bubba, accompanied by Jimmy Hart. Eric says that the show got started five minutes early tonight because they wanted uh, to show what was happening with Hall and Nash. So, yeah, there's that confirmation that, indeed, they started early yeah. uh, to deal with Raw doing the same thing. So you better tune in early next week, because it might happen again. Out here to face Bubba is Jim Powers, who for some reason does not have Teddy Long with him tonight, even though we know Long is in the building. I don't know if they split up or if it's just an oversight. Long didn't feel like it. I, I don't know. I think he's too busy like getting uh, Jericho into like these like standing agreements by right, stating right, things. Yes. They start off the match with some basic back and forth, and Bischoff is in that mood he gets in sometimes where he must breathlessly call every single move that's happening. Yep. Powers works the arm, and Tanae finally asks Eric about the Piper rumors. Eric says that there's nothing to tell, it's just rumors, and he has no reason to believe that Piper is going to be on the show. <laughs> he calls it nothing more than internet gossip. He claims they've tried to get in touch with Piper and his team, but they, have, they haven't been able to. And as far as he knows, Piper's in Toronto filming a movie. Hmm. Uh, as far as the match, it's four minutes long and nothing happens. And Bubba eventually wins with the Bubba Slam. Uh, there's like never been a... I normally write at least something about these matches, but really there was just nothing. It's Big Bubba and Jim Powers. It's exactly what you think it is. Exactly. Bubba well, does his normal Bubba spots and they're fine. I'm not saying it's bad necessarily. It's just there's nothing to talk about. And it just—it seems like a match on paper, and when they're introduced, it's like someone's interfering in this match, right? Like someone's going to try, try to come out and make a statement, but yeah. nothing happens. I'm just like, with every second that went by, I'm like, what's happening? Why are we still in this match? Why are we still right. doing this? And I actually need to amend my statement because I said the spots didn't look bad, but uh, I forgot that my very next note is that Bubba's punches look terrible in this match <laughs> for some reason. And normally I like Bubba. I think I think Ray Trailer was a great worker, but yeah. here his punches look terrible, and he has at one point the loosest chin lock like I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. He is just putting like no attempt to make it look like he's actually inflicting the slightest pain on his opponent. Yeah, like uh, Ray Ray Trailer at his like in his best efforts is is a really good big man, mm -hmm. but. I think he is kind of like a hit and miss. Like sometimes maybe he's just not as motivated based on the kind of match that he's having. Sure. Um, but no, I, I like I was really when I was a kid, I was a really big fan of the big boss man. But uh, Ray Trailer, I mean, or uh, Big Bubba. Yeah, there's there's not really much of a character to him. Right. Besides, he was feuding with John Tenta for a while, and John Tenta, even though he got like the upper hand most of the time, is just like not around yeah. anymore. So he he kind of doesn't have much going for him, and it's really hard for me to like get interested in his matches. And, and to be honest, it's Jim Powers. You know, I'll I'll, yeah. Do, yeah. I'll do respect, which you know, it's Jim Powers. How I, I don't know that you can get too excited about getting in the ring with that guy. Uh, so as we go to commercial, Eric tells us that on the other side, we're going to get Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero. 
And uh, just out of curiosity, because it feels like that's a matchup we'd seen a lot of times, mm -hmm. I looked up how many, and uh, I was going to ask you to, to guess, Dave, but uh, I guess I'll say, and this is the first time I've mentioned it here on the show, but uh, this is the second go-through we've had of recording this episode. We This is a lost episode. Yeah. Uh, so you've already heard all these facts one time. It was a few weeks ago, and, and unfortunately that is lost to the ether of the internet. If it, if but, it helps here at but, all, I don't remember a single fact. I'll be, I was about to say. I was about to say. To be fair, I've also forgotten all. This I forgot too. that right. Jim Powers had a match on this show. <laughs> well, prepare to be re-surprised when I tell you that since the debut of Nitro, this is the thirteenth time in fourteen months that these two have faced off on WCW television. Wow. Really, basically once a month. Yep. Wow. The one loss record is Eddie with six wins, Benoit with five, one no contest, and one double countout. That seems fair. Yeah. It's the fifth time that they've faced each other in singles action on Nitro, with the last being four weeks ago, the night after Halloween Havoc, uh, when they did that match where the storyline was they were both injured, uh, and Benoit won after Mongo hit Eddie in the legitimately broken ribs yep. with the Halliburton briefcase. Eric claims that this match will satisfy even the most ardent wrestling critic. <laughs> I feel I like there's got to be something behind that line, right? He, well, he's probably talking to anyone that was just watching Bubba versus Jim Powers. <laughs> Chris Benoit comes out with Woman, and Mike Tanay acknowledges all the history between Guerrero and uh, Benoit, pointing out that they've also had many matches in Japan. He also reminds us that... Uh, oh. He also makes mention of the October 28th match that I was just talking about and points out that Eddie has not wrestled since... Although Eric claims that Eddie is back to 100% now. Eddie comes out and he gets a bit of pyro and we get right to the action with our own Dave Amantorp. So we begin with back and forth action, but this back and forth action has been pumped up to 11 as these two men have energy and intensity to spare tonight. Benoit is eventually able to take Guerrero to the mat and applies the Crippler crossface but Eddie is simply too close to the ropes. Lucky Eddie. Benoit continues his assault on Guerrero, and we get a pre-recorded interview with Kevin Sullivan, who claims his neck was broken in Baltimore or something like that. It's it's kind of not very, it's not a very coherent interview. But yeah, uh, I, yeah I would agree that the main takeaway that I took from this promo was that he was wearing orange shirt from earlier in the night. Like, right. So there was not a lot of coherence to this this particular speech by Mr. Uh, Mr. Taskmaster. Yeah, I was going to say it's very intimidating to do an interview with a WCW Monday Nitro t-shirt on. But also, <laughs> also, it's a much better look for Kevin Sullivan than almost anything else he wears. Sure, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's not that's not wrong. But I forget, Tim, did you have some notes about like this idea of uh, Benoit claiming his neck was broken in Baltimore? That was, um, oh, Sullivan, yeah. Sullivan says that his neck was broken in Baltimore. He's referring uh, to their match at Bash of the Beach okay. last year when uh, Benoit set up a table across the top rope and did a superplex from it. Oh, mm -hmm. that was such a great spot. Yeah, so yeah. He's, he's referring to that. And again, like I was mentioning earlier, he's promoting their rematch at the house show Yeah, uh, that's on Saturday, the night before the pay-per-view. But they're... they're there was no part of their feud with each other in which there was a suggestion that Sullivan was injured. He's just no making this up now, or he's speaking hyperbically. Like yeah. I don't know that he's necessarily like 
that the idea is that he's lying about having a broken neck. I think he's just saying, like, you beat the shit out of me in Baltimore. Right. So we return back to the action, and Guerrero has gained the upper hand, as both men are determined to chop each other into oblivion. Benoit with a beautiful side suplex, as his offense always looks amazing against Guerrero. Benoit... Yeah, these, these two... Uh, I mean, there's a reason why they keep throwing them out there together. Their chemistry yeah. is just unbelievable. And I'm I'm not saying that uh, this is not to, uh, um, like, Guerrero doesn't approve of this, but Benoit seems to have a little bit more liberties as far as, like, how hard he hits him. Oh, sure. Like, with Guerrero, it seems like he's able to ramp it up even a little bit more, and I'm yeah. sure it's kind of just, like, the way that these two, like, wrestle each other. So Right, yeah, when, when you've got the trust that, their experience together is built up. It's probably a little easier to 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 step it up just that one more notch or two to right. to give that that expression. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think it also kind of shows the trust they have with each other because they're both very very physical wrestlers. But they were able to have that match the next day after Guerrero broke his ribs, and from all I can tell, is that they did not reaggravate those injuries while still focusing on the injury too. Right. So just. Two real professional wrestlers, professional wrestling with each other. <laughs> so Benoit keeps Guerrero pinned to the mat so he can slap him, and he is slapping him as hard as humanly possible. And not only that, but he follows up by trying to grind Guerrero into dust with a headlock on the mat. Simply, Benoit is just, he's ramping it up big time tonight. Yeah, his aggression level is off the chart in this match. Uh, a butterfly suplex from the Crippler gets him a two, and he's quick to follow up with a hammerlock. Benoit now applies some sort of like inverted surfboard. It, he's just kind of improvising like a surfboard submission move. Mm-hmm. He stomps away on Guerrero, and when he returns to a partial vertical position, applies an abdominal stretch, at which point I mentioned that Eddie is going to be fucking sore in the morning <laughs> because it's like not only is he hitting him, he's hitting him everywhere, Yeah, like his neck, his arms, his ribs, his abdominals, his legs. Everything's getting a little bit of a, that that Benoit effect. Benoit attempts to go for what I call his Guerrero killer, which is a power bomb, but Eddie floats over for a sunset flip, which gets a two count. They trade blows next to the ropes as we hit a commercial break. When we return, Benoit is muscling Guerrero to the mat, forcing his shoulders down in a chest of strength hold, but Eddie is not done just yet. Guerrero bounces up to his feet and hits a standing hurricanrana, but this only manages to anger Benoit, who drops into the mat with a press slam. Every Guerrero comeback is thwarted at the start by Benoit, and a top rope attempt by Eddie is blocked as Benoit hits a superplex. Benoit again attempts the powerbomb, but Guerrero counters with a hurricanrana that sends both competitors over the top rope and to the floor. No DQ, though. Yeah, no momentum. Was <laughs> unintentional, unintentional. Right. They brawl on the floor, but Woman intervenes on Benoit's behalf. She goes for a slap, but Guerrero blocks it, which opens him up to attack by Benoit. Back in the ring and a sneaky small package by Eddie almost gets him the victory. Uh, my wife's nickname for me is the sneaky small package. Guerrero <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, hits a side suplex of his own, but Benoit dodges a frog splash attempt. Eddie tries for another Hurricanrana into a pin attempt, but Benoit uses his momentum against him rolling over into a pin attempt of his own, and this one he manages to hold on for the quick pinfall victory. I felt like towards the like the second half of this match, um, 
we got like maybe a little bit more variety from each from both those wrestlers. Mm-hmm. I felt like they were they were kind of going for a little bit more unconventional moves on their own behalf, and and maybe it was like kind of telling the story of like Benoit and Guerrero have like wrestled each other so many times that maybe they have to like they have to dig go- real deep into their bag of tricks. Yes, exactly, and and I think that it kind of also serves for like that that it was an unconventional way that Benoit defeated Eddie because maybe Eddie is. He's he's confronted like his like signature moves and everything like that, so maybe that wouldn't have put him away on this night. But um, yeah, I mean it's Eddie Guerrero versus Chris Benoit. Obviously, it was awesome. Um, just added on to the the collection that we're getting, the very large collection we're getting of WCW matches between these two. Yeah, I thought it was a good match. It was uh like they've had better, and maybe mm-hmm. they'll have worse. Like this is kind of maybe um the average Chris Benoit-Eddie Guerrero match, which is a very good match. Yes. Right, still head and shoulders above most people who've ever stepped in a ring. Yes, absolutely. Benoit immediately rolls to the outside to celebrate his win while a stunned Eddie sits in the ring. We see some replays and go to commercial with Eric says that he plans to make a very important statement after the break. Okay. When we return, Eric is in the ring and he addresses the fans at home and in the arena. All right, thank you. Thank you. Welcome back across the country. And I want to say something, not only the fans watching at home, but everybody here in the arena. First of all, thank you for coming out. I'm glad you joined us tonight. But I want to apologize for what Hulk Hogan made me do earlier here. And I want everybody to know that we're going to do everything in our power at WCW to try to get Roddy Piper to sign for the match to take on Paul Kogan, we know you want to see it. The mail, email, faxes I've been getting in my office, everybody at WCW knows we're going to try and continue to reach his attorneys, his agents, his managers. We've been trying, and it's been tough. But we will, despite anything that... Any... Bischoff apologizes for the stuff that Hogan made him say earlier, and he promises that WCW will do everything in their power to sign Roddy Roddy Piper. He knows that everyone is demanding the match, and he's trying very hard, but it's been tough because despite... And he trails off as a snare drum and some bagpipes start playing. Of course, this means Piper, but rather than seem relieved or even surprised, Eric looks scared. Yeah, yeah. I'm watching it right now as as you're talking, and his facial expressions are definitely more on the terror side than the, <laughs> oh, here's this guy I've been trying to get a hold of for two months. Right. Oh, finally, we could seal the deal. Hot Rod makes his way to the ring, uh, kilt, black leather jacket, the whole deal. Absolute badass look for yes. Piper. The crowd gives him a very good reaction as he looks around. He gets a mic and a nervous-looking Bischoff watches as Rowdy Roddy Piper addresses the Nitro crowd for the first time. It's nice to be back. You know what? I have come here to tell some truth. I have never heard so many lies in my entire life other than when I was saying them. I want to tell you something first. It's my honor to be back here because, you know, I got six kids. 
My first child was born in Char Charlotte, North Carolina in the Presbyterian Hospital. I told you with Hogan, while I was taking on all comers in a garage, he was playing in Tootsie's Bar and Grill. You know that highway that goes from Charlotte to Columbia? While they were building it, I was driving it, being chased by the cops. I am king of the frat house. And I'm just a little peeled. I understand somebody's calling me a coward. Saying that I'm afraid. You know, there's a guy, his name is LL Cool J. He's a rapping kind of guy. He wrote a song that said, you slapped Roddy Piper and you didn't get a hassle. You're a liar. Come here to talk about jerks and liars. <laughs> First of all, how you doing? Having a nice time? I'm sorry? I've met better. You've had better? <laughs> Such a great guy. <laughs> so you, you flew all the way to Portland to get this fight. You talked to my managers to get this fight. <laughs> What'd you fly? First class coach, how'd you fly? First class coach, what was it? First class coach, how'd you fly? Uh, what airlines? What airlines? I'll <laughs> be darned. And you come on up to my ranch. When you come up to my ranch, tell me, is the road crooked or is the road straight? Tell me, is the road crooked? I don't remember. I don't remember. Tell me something. You, you piece of shit, you are... Piper says that he's come to tell some truths because he's never heard so many lies in all his life, other than when he was the one saying them. Great line. Roddy says that it's an honor to be back in the first, as the first of his five kids was born in Charlotte at the Presbyterian Hospital. Charlotte is more than two hours away in a different Carolina, but I, the crowd is willing to forgive this. Yes. <laughs> They're in the shadow of Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they appreciate the effort. Piper says that he was fighting back when Hogan was still playing in bands, and that they, when they built the highway that runs from Charlotte to Columbia, he was driving on it to run from the cops. <laughs> well, he was driving on it before they even finished it. Let's be clear. <laughs> I, I just like the image of like the construction crew frantically finishing it so they have right. room for him to drive away from the cops. <laughs> like the whole imagery of that is just so ridiculous. I'm like, I love it. He then declares himself king of the frat house. Mm -hmm. The crowd... Loves this. <laughs> it does, uh, we don't know what that means, yeah. but it sounds cool. A lot of frat guys in the crowd, maybe? That's yeah, <laughs> here's our king. <laughs> Piper is pissed off because someone is calling him a coward. Piper says there's a man called LL Cool J, who he describes as, quote, a rapping kind of guy. <laughs> One of those fellas. 
before quoting some lyrics from LL Cool J's 1985 song, That's a Lie, in which a guy provides a long list of things that an acquaintance has lied about, including uh, the claim that this guy says that he slapped Roddy Piper and didn't even get a hassle back from uh, from Roddy over it, I guess, is sort huh. of the, the implication. The actual line is, you slapped Roddy Piper and you didn't get a hassle. Uh Piper does not quote the rhyme, which is, you promised your girl filet mignon, but took her to White Castle. <laughs> I'll have no disparaging of White Castle on this program. <laughs> Thank you very much, Roddy. Piper says that he's here tonight to talk about jerks and liars. He goes to shake Bischoff's hand, and Eric, for whatever reason, is petrified. He gives Eric a way too hard, uh, faux-friendly pat on the shoulder. Uh, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> and asks Eric about flying to Portland to meet with Piper's team to get the fight set up. He asks Bischoff if he flew coach or first class, and when Eric can't seem to remember right away, he starts hassling him, repeating, coach or first class, coach or first class. He then asks Eric about the road that drives up to Piper's ranch, asking if it was crooked, crooked or straight. But again, Eric can't remember. All of a sudden, the giant hits the ring and grabs Piper, but not before Piper calls Eric a piece of shit very loudly on the hot mic. <laughs> nice. The rest of the NWO runs in and trash starts flying. Hogan is in last, and he walks right up to Bischoff, and they hug. What? Eric smiles and offers Hogan his mic. Now! Now that everybody realizes who everybody's working for, I mean, my God, this guy here was the foundation of the WCW. Now he works for the NWO. I'll tell you what, stand him up, but watch him. Watch him real close. Hey, you know something, Piper? You're a loser fighting a losing battle. You have never been anything in the wrestling business. And until you wrestled me, Piper, nobody even knew your name. Now, Rowdy Roddy Piper is such a coward. He won't even sign a contract to wrestle me. And since you won't get in the ring with me, Piper, you will never be anything, my man. I think it's time to teach you a little respect, Piper. Hogan grabs the mic and says, now everyone realizes who everyone else is working for. Do we, though? <laughs> yeah so let's maybe before we go on let's talk about it the idea of is and if you if if we're slowing down and covering it i think it probably sounds to the listener who hasn't seen this nitro like it makes more sense than it does mm -hmm. the idea is that piper is asking coming out and asking bischoff these very specific questions about their past meetings and because Bischoff can't remember, it exposes that Bischoff is lying. Yes. I, I don't think they put... A, they don't lean into that enough, though. No, they it's don't. It's not clear. I th my guess, and this is just a guess, but my guess is that because it's Piper that he went long, because he's always going long, 
and that they were like, shit, we just have to rush this and send the giant out now, even though it's not really... Like, they should have done a few more examples or something, but they, like, had to send the giant because they were getting too close to the top of the hour. Right, or, or even had, like, Bischoff actually get some sort of response, like, have him stuttering to come up with an answer or yeah. something. It's like, the, it's like the softest heel turn in wrestling history. It's just like, oh, he's bad now for reasons. Yeah, it's uh, in the way it plays off in the moment, it... It needs to be broadcast a lot more. It doesn't even right. come across as subtle. It just comes across as, like, poorly Non-existent, organized. yeah. Right. Which, the story itself makes sense when you know what the story is. I don't think they were able to communicate that story in this particular segment. I guess because of all the trash that's being thrown, Doug Dillinger and some cops get into the ring. Which is hilarious because they ignore that five guys in the NWO are holding Piper like hostage. There's right, there's a literal right there. assault going on, <laughs> yeah. and they don't. They're like, "Well, we got to stop these popcorn cups." Hogan says that Eric was the foundation of WCW, but now he works for the NWO. Hogan demands that they stand Piper up, and Eric pretends to take some pot shots at him. Uh, it's such a great turn on a dime. Uh, dickhead move by Bischoff where when he was alone with Piper just hearing his music made him terrified right now that five guys are holding him he's like shadow boxing him and talking shit oh you want to fight I'll fight you now come Mm -hmm. on come on come on it does a good job of showing that uh Bischoff is going to be an effective heel even if the heel turn wasn't great like he's gonna be the perfect smarmy heel that we yeah uh in 2019 we all know that he can be yeah Hogan declares Piper a loser, fighting a losing battle, and says that he's never been anything in wrestling business. Until he fought Hogan, nobody had ever even heard of him. So, boy, am I ready to spend money on their big match. (laughs) Hulk Hogan versus a loser who loses and is never amounted to anything. Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, I I think it's well known in Hulk Hogan's career that he's not very good at propping up his opponents. (laughs) Hogan says that Piper is too scared to sign a contract to fight him. Even though the entire point of the segment was to show that that claim was a lie. Like, the whole story here is that Piper would sign a contract, but yeah. they've been not letting him. Right. So to come out and be like, you're too scared to do it. I, I think that's just Hogan just kind of talking off the top of his head, not really thinking about the, what the actual story is supposed to be. Well, I mean, it's also it's also Hogan, the character, just being delusional. And that's just going true. going back to his talking points of, I, in my mind, you're you're a coward sort of thing. Yeah, Piper. I was I was gonna say I I totally agree, Dave. That that is is definitely Hogan like just claiming because in his mind, no one is 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 brave enough to fight him, even sure. though the truth. And again, it's an example of this is a moment where when you think about it, you can come up with the answer, but they're not giving you an answer. They're mm-hmm. you know, and that's whether that's good writing or bad writing, I, I don't know, but it's definitely something that's happening. Piper spits at and tries to get to Hogan. Hogan says it's time to teach Piper some respect, and then there's, like, more of a physical scuffle than there's been. So at that point, a lot more cops get in the ring, and they finally separate all parties. The crowd chants for Roddy, who keeps trying to get at Hogan or any member of the NWO, but is prevented by the security. Yeah. Heenan and Tanae, who are still on commentary, can't believe what they have just seen. Eventually, the NWO leaves, and Piper, Dillinger, and a dozen cops are left in the ring. Piper manages to get a live mic back. But not his breath. 
<laughs> I just can't believe what I've seen. I can't either. We gotta go. We gotta go. We'll see everybody next Monday. Sickening. This is sickening. Absolutely. You wanna fight? You gotta fight! November the 24th, Norfolk, Virginia, I'll have a contract in my teeth. No surrender, no retreat. Hey, Baldy. Piper says that if Hogan wants a fight, he's got one, and Piper will sign the contract at World War III this Sunday in Norfolk. Piper calls Hogan Baldy and tells him to kiss his ass as we go off the air with Piper still talking, because he has to go long in every goddamn segment. I also like the idea because you could tell with the Hogan-Savage match and whole feud going on that there was a focus on making fun of Savage's balding but never mentioned Hogan's balding. And now that, that Piper's around, he's like, nope, that's that's number one. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that was the that's like one of the big things, right? That Hogan was like, don't you fucking talk about my hair. It had always been in the WWF, um, but during the Savage feud, Savage didn't bring up the baldness, but the announcers would. Like when Hogan Ooh, would okay. call Savage bald, yeah. Eric would be like, well, what do you see when you look in the mirror, Mr. Hogan? Kind of right. that kind of thing. Okay. So it has been allowed in WCW to make fun of him for being bald. Uh, I think now that he's a heel, like when he was a baby face, it was just like you can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Now that he's a heel, it's kind of okay, I guess. So that wraps up the angle. Uh, we talked about the heel turn, whether that was effective, but what about the angle overall? Do you think that was, uh, if we're heading towards this big match for Hogan and Piper, which of course we are, uh, was that an effective segment at selling that match? Uh, Joey, why don't we start with you? What do you think? Yeah, overall, I thought the segment for for whatever it lacked in uh, clarity, it certainly made up for in super cool visuals and effective promo i think both by hogan and by piper there at the end of setting up that conflict setting up that clash and then kind of sort of spelling out okay bischoff works for the nwo now um and he's that that as you said that that spin on a dime from coward when he's face to face alone to just pure distilled smarmy asshole when he's got his big wrestler friends around him i think that was effective and and as you said it it gives us that window into oh this is who eric bischoff is now and it's very effective in in that sense and i I thought it was cool seeing piper just it's funny to contrast it against the bullying that we talked about in the first segment yeah because piper is at the very beginning piper's doing to bischoff Almost exactly what Nash yes. was doing to Shivani. Yeah, he gives him mm. that real hard pat on the shoulder that's yeah. like ostensibly friendly, but clearly isn't. That's and, I'm and, glad you make that comparison because I, while I was talking about it, I thought about it, but I didn't go down that path. But I'm glad that that someone else kind of picked up on that and felt that way. 
Yeah, and and I think may, maybe it's just the dichotomy that is wrestling, but because of the good guy bad guy dynamic, Piper seemed to come off like such a badass to me, whereas mm-hmm. Nash came off as just a bully and a punk. And and I thought that was weird because they they literally were doing almost the exact same action. Right. My reaction was very different based on who was doing what to whom. And I thought that was interesting to, to take a look at what wrestling makes me feel and how they're able to take these stories and make me think and make me feel about things. The difference between a heel being a bully and a face being a bully. And I thought that was an interesting dichotomy. Dave, how did you like the segment overall and, and the way that it's advancing the Piper Hogan stuff? Well, I liked it, and I, I feel like I'm just on the other side as far as the uh, not making it obvious. I, I feel like that that by kind of like following along with what was going on there, I think that the intention there, I feel like it was very apparent of what was going on. Oh. I, I mean, I don't... I felt like instead of it, it wasn't really like Piper going like too long with his story, mm-hmm. but, but it's like Piper finally catching up with the, with his like nemesis. It was savoring the moment. Sure. And not yeah, only that, yeah, yeah, I can see that, and not only that, but like you're talking about him being kind of a badass. Like he knows that he's doing this at the risk of the NWO coming in too, you know, but he just wants to make sure that, that uh Bischoff is revealed for the fraud that he is. And, and, and to make sure that, his fans know it's like, hey, I would have had this signed weeks ago if it wasn't for the fact that the guy trying to sign me was also on the other side. <laughs> yeah, All uh, right, that, that's that's good. I, I can I can totally buy into that, Dave. And then, I mean, the whole idea it, it got kind of it got kind of goofy with like all the police being involved. But I feel like that that was their way of like uh, they wanted to make it like a very like typical Roddy Piper moment in which they they always associate Piper with like. It gets like so out of hand. The cops show up, um, and so they that I felt like that was like why they brought the cops in like really really quickly is because they wanted it to be a very like Piper esque sort of moment. And then one of the things I love is especially when someone's like, if it's a situation, especially if it's like wrestling where you're supposed to be held back by someone, make that person struggle for it. Like, like Piper's probably think like i will go and i will punch him in the face if you cannot hold me back like right. yeah. i will try yeah. the best of my ability to get out of that and uh i always like that because it just kind of it just makes the whole situation just kind of wild and out of control and you uh, you got the feeling that even though the whole nwo was there the cops were there that it was still like they were barely containing roddy piper right somehow piper was still in control almost yeah yeah i think you're right and, and it made it it makes me feel i mean it's night and day between this and the feud with Savage. I feel like Piper has a legitimate chance. And even though Hogan is doing his very, very best to like just run down someone, Piper just has like just this uh, like irresistible force to him where it's like, yeah, I mean, Hogan can say and do all he wants, but it's going to be a lot different when, once the bell rings. It's just him and just Piper. All right, well, let's uh, wrap up and talk about what we thought about the episode as a whole. Uh, I'm going to start, and I kind of thought that uh, this episode was a little below average. I wouldn't go ahead and call it bad, but there were just, uh, you had the Jarrett, um, I can't think of his name, Bobby Eaton match. Yep. You had the Jim Powers Bubba match, uh, the Jericho Grunge match. Like, those are three of the, whatever it is, seven matches 
that like just get rid of him. I don't care about him at all. Yeah, the like the very middle of the show drag. It was yeah. very I mean, for all like the kind of like the the good things happen at the beginning to end. Yeah. The middle was really bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You started off real hot with the Hoovy uh Laparka match, which had its problems that we talked about, but overall I liked it. It was it was good. Yeah. Then you had Malenko Dragon, which was good, and then you had this very saggy middle. You had it uh that first NWO segment, which was kind of funny, but ultimately unnecessary, I thought. The yeah. one where Hogan came out, I mean. Yes. Um that was I didn't get a ton out of that. And then yeah, some more bad matches, and then finally, uh a good angle at the end of the show. So there was enough here to make me like think in retrospect, like, oh, I liked that. But in the actual process of watching the middle like forty minutes, it's yeah. yeah. It's quite a drag. And I feel like Hogan coming out there was was uh WCW just like spoon peeing the fans like just remember, at this point, they're not friends, okay? <laughs> right. They're just making sure that the that the turn at the end is more effective, and which it, and they did it kind of like not kind of, but very in like uh, a deprecating way to fans of like you do remember these guys hate each other, right? Like yeah, establishing the relationship before they destroy they they flip it on its head. Yeah. Right. I feel like that was kind of what they were they were just having that one extra segment just so you remember that they are not supposed to like each other. So overall, what did you think of the episode as a whole, Dave? Um it, yeah, hit and miss. I think like the middle section was really, really weak. As much as like the, the whole Piper Hogan thing I thought was uh, appealing. I'm not interested in like the contract signing. I'm at the point where I'm like, just have the match now. Cause I don't, I'm like, Oh, what we're going to do is have another segment of these guys talking to each other. In which you, like you said, they still have not yet to figure out like when to stop talking. It which even, cause there's a very good chance that segment is, I mean, hopefully they'll do us a service and not have it at the very end of the show. Maybe in the middle of the show where they have a definitive time in which I have to stop. Uh, and that might just help it out a little bit, but um, again, I really like the announcers trying their like doing their best to to put over that anyone can win World War Three. That makes it more interesting uh, to me, and also just the idea that the announcers will be interested in all the different competitors and not just focusing on like NWO members or Dungeon and Doom members and that sort of thing. Um, so I felt like they did a pretty good effort. Um, trying to hype up the the pay per view, maybe not not so much like the individual matches and the just the battle royal itself, but um, and yeah, and I, it's like the ending is a very like well known like kind sort of iconic I would say like Nitro segment of Bishop turning, and I I still like the way that plays out. So yeah, it, there's there's some good and there's some bad. So Joey, what do you think of this episode? I think it just sort of. In a general sense, I'm coming off a little more positive um, than it sounds like. I would put this in the upper half of Nitros I've ever seen, rather than the lower half. Um, and, you know, that's you know different flavors for different folks, I guess. But um, I, I thought the show started off incredibly strongly with that, the, the coming in with that, the basically corpses littering the ring, Hall and Nash and their interaction with, Shivani and Tanay, or sorry, Shivani and Zabisco. I thought that was an incredible way to start a show. It immediately put its hooks in me, and I wanted to know what was going on going forward from that. Um, I thought a lot of the matches served either P 
purely entertainment as from a from a wrestling standpoint or did a good job setting forward their storylines like the american males uh versus the canadians was was that sort of match the sting versus humor sorry the luger versus humorous match did that same thing overall i this was a great two hours you know hour and a half i guess on the network but of wrestling um and i there were bad bad moments absolutely especially in that middle you're right the the middle half an hour 40 minutes is is low but it ended on an, an, a good high with that imagery of all the cops and the NWO holding Piper back and the the heel turn by Bischoff. The start and the end were so strong for me that I think it probably elevated maybe everything else in my head. So it, I didn't I didn't care so much that Bobby Eaton versus Jeff Jarrett happened. You know, it, it. I forgive them that because they gave me these other things, maybe. All right. Well, the only thing that we normally have left in our show is our segment of the night and our MVP. But before we get to that, Joey, why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about what the Sultans of Spandex is and where they can find it? Oh, absolutely. First off, I want to just take a moment and say, you know, thank you to, to you, Tim, and to you, David. It was a lot of fun coming on and talking with you. I'm, a, I'm just a huge wrestling mark. Like, flat out, I'll be honest. I, I love this shit. I think it's the greatest storytelling medium that human beings have come up with so far. Um, and I love to talk about it with anyone I can and and anytime I can. And, and to be able to come on and talk with you guys who clearly know your shit and are entertaining as well. Um, so thank you for, for having me on today. Well, thank you. Uh, before, while we're thanking each other, thank you especially uh, for coming back and doing this one again after the original Absolutely. one got lost. I <laughs> yeah. really do appreciate that. Uh, so the Sultans of Spandex, basically three friends, um, two of which myself, Joey Gecko, and Gary Early. We've been watching wrestling since we were kids. Um, and one guy, uh, Joe Blake, who I've known for about 20 years now, um, who I just assumed had watched wrestling. And I did not find out he had never watched a minute of wrestling until the very first episode when we sat down and recorded. Um, and <laughs> that was a that was a shock to me, but I think it's it's brought together a nice little flavor. Uh, Gary's been uh, a WWF fan most of his life. I was I was born and bred WCW as a kid, um, and we got together and we covered the, all the WCW pay per views, basically from from Hogan's first appearance at Bash at the Beach '94. Um, the plan is to cover every pay-per-view until the eventual purchase by the WWF. Um, right now, we just recorded our Bash at the Beach 96. So Hogan just dropped the infamous leg. Um, we're still dealing with the aftermath there. Um, we tend to be more storyline-driven. We're less focused on like business or behind-the-scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, th- though I will touch on that when it has a direct correlation to what's going on TV. But again, as, as I said earlier, for me... The storyline and the drama is is what attracts me to wrestling. I like the physicality. I like the flippy shit. I like the big guys hammering on each other and, and shit like that. But I'm here for the stories and the people, and that's what I care about. So we basically watch the pay-per-views, react to what we're seeing, um, kind of go in a little bit on, on our reactions to those kind of things. And it's a lot of fun. We're about 22 episodes in now, so we're, we're starting to build up. Um, a, a history and, a, and a, a repertoire that we can we can show to people. Uh, we're on iTunes. Uh, we're on Podbean. We're on Stitcher. You can find us at, at on Twitter at Spandex Sultans or on Facebook for the 
five people that have ever been on a, my our Facebook page. <laughs> um, Facebook is sort of like the ne- neglected stepchild. Primarily, we're on Twitter mostly, and and on iTunes is where we hang out the most. So uh, that's where you can find us if you're interested. And I really hope you do because I think that we are uh, we're doing some some fun shit over at the the Salt and Spandex. All right. Well, that brings us to the final part of our show, and that is to announce our segment of the night and our MVP. Uh, Joey, as our guest, we'll start with you. What was your segment of the night? I, a little bit of a toss-up for me. I thought about giving it to the to the Piper Bischoff, but ultimately, just because of the the acting and the portrayal that that came out of that first segment, I'm gonna have to go with that cold open for my segment. Just spectacular work by Nash Hall, especially Tony Schiavone, um, in in telling us that story and letting us see into the the fear that the nwo can provide ultimately i mean say what you will about what the nwo turns into it started and was at its best when they were a terrifying and slightly overpowering force so i appreciated that part of it dave what was your segment of the night um well i'm gonna give my segment of the night to uh chris benoit versus eddie guerrero because it's it's just hard for me not to give it to those guys when they're wrestling <laughs> yeah. each other. You're not um, wrong. And like I said, I kind of like the like the little hints towards the end of the match of them doing a little bit more unconventional things and an unconventional finish as well. Uh, so it kind of kept their matches still fresh, even though we have seen that quite a lot. So, you know, I feel like anytime there's a Guerrero Benoit match, it's it's that's an easy one to give it to. So I'm gonna do that. All right, and I'm going to give mine to Juventud Guerrero versus Laparca. Uh, Laparca is a fun character to look at. He's uh, got some great stuff in the ring. He's fun to look at uh, and just different. You know, it's funny that we had the show with guys like Laparca and uh, Pierre Carl Ouellette, mm-hmm. who are much, much older now, but like in 2018 and to some degree still here in 2019. Those guys were a major part of the wrestling scene, mm-hmm. it, uh, which you would not probably have believed if you had watched this Nitro. Not mm-hmm. that they were bad or anything, just to say to take those two guys and say, 23 years later, they're still going to be a huge part of this business is pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was. I like the phrase what you called Laparca when he came out. You said like the the burly the burly masked skeleton. Or yeah, something, something like, like that. that. <laughs> it was just like a just a great turn and phrase where it's like oh yeah that's that's what he is <laughs> burly skeleton that brings us to our mvp i'll go first and uh i'm gonna give my mvp to tony shivani who i thought in his short appearance on this show uh really just did like one of the best acting pure acting jobs uh that has been seen in wrestling in quite a long time or even since i thought that he was just fantastic my hat's off to him great in this episode uh dave who is your mvp I'm going to give my MBT, my MVP to Rowdy Rowdy Piper. Uh, I feel like WCW really needed a shot in the arm in, in like the main event scene because the Hoyan Savage one dragged out and just had no enthusiasm behind. Um, so now that we have someone facing Hogan that that seems like a formidable force, and also is kind of like he's as much as the NWO wants to rule WCW, he's he's disrupting it, disrupting it. Just by his mere presence, so sure, yeah. I, I want to give mine to the rowdy one, Joey. Who is your MVP of the show? Yeah, for me, hands down, I agree. It is Roddy Piper coming in. It, I have not, 
you know, we're back at, at, at just after Bash of the Beach at the at the Sultans. And so I turn on this episode. I'm watching it. Got that great open. We got these good matches. And then at the end, Piper literally sold me on this pay-per-view. I want to watch World War Three when we end this recording, simply based on the promo that he gave sure. in the ring tonight. So for me, um, just as far as putting butts in the seats and as far as, as getting me excited for what's going to happen, his attitude, his appearance on this show tonight, Roddy Piper is my MVP. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, just to give you some kind of housekeeping notes, you're going to find our next episode is going to be Worldwide Edition where we talk about everything in the week of wrestling uh, for this week in history that wasn't Nitro. So we'll go over the raw results. We'll take you through the Observer. We'll go through the ratings and uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, there's uh, big news over in ECW. Uh, a little a little incident called Mass Transit hmm. is going to happen. So that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Or maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that you want to describe it as fun. What It'll be interesting anyway. Uh, but we're going to bring you that. And then our episode after that will be our coverage of World War III. Uh, it's going to be slimmed down. We're not going to give it like a four-hour pay-per-view coverage. We're just going to kind of cover the important highlights and, and talk a little bit about the undercard matches. Um, but those are going to be our next two episodes before we're back here to talk about Nitro. Uh, so look forward to that. And you will find, of course, those episodes right here where the big boys play 20 years of Nitro.